In a world filled with sharks, bears, and killer bees, one man is brave enough to stay indoors to bring you the latest in gaming, movie, and pop culture news. That man is Tom Awesome, and this is the Outside is Overrated podcast. Hello, welcome to Outside is Overrated, a podcast about gaming and nerd pop culture. Thank you so much for joining us today. I'm your host, Tom Sedlachik, and today we are going to discuss the career of Peter Jackson. We're going to break his career down into phases, discussing the Frighteners representing his early work, King Kong is the middle of his career, and They Shall Not Grow Old is his most recent chapter. Joining me for the discussion today are the ever-fancy Billy Perot. Perot. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, guys. And my awe-inspiring wife, Phoenix. Hello. Welcome to the show. Billy, you haven't been on since the Far Cry show earlier this year. What have you been up to? Oh, yeah. It has been Far Cry since I was last here. Uh, not a whole lot, just uh, hard at work. Um, and uh, let's see, Michelle and I recently became foster parents to a new cat, Big Daddy. How do you end up fostering a cat? Yeah, so uh, unfortunately, our uh, cat, Buddy, uh, had passed, and we spoke with uh, her sister, who is huge in the fostering and everything, gave us the number to Forever Home. They're based out of Zimmerman, and they take in, uh, you know, uh, cats and animals and everything with, uh, you know, medical complexities and everything like that. Um, and save them from euthanasia. So we docked with them, and they sent us a couple of pictures, and we found Big Daddy. It's <laughs> a so big old silver, we think Russian blue. We're not looks, sure. I yeah. think it's a Russian blue. My sister has a Russian blue. It almost looks like yeah. Conley. So we we chose them, and yeah, I think we're going to wind up foster failing and adopting. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah, that's that's the, the bigger news that's been happening other than that video games and well, that's awesome. and stuff. One of our mutual friends, Scott, has uh, just uh, adopted a second cat, and I heard you talking to him at the Patreon party yesterday about that. Do you think a second kitty cat is in the cards for you guys? I don't know. Um, so Big Daddy has FIV. So what's that? Um, that's feline AIDS. So oh. it's a they can live oh. normal lives. It's not a death sentence or anything as long as they're basically like their immune system is kept healthy and everything. They mm-hmm. I'll be just fine. Um, so they caution against getting other cats just in case they get into a fight and he passes anything uh-huh. or they pass anything to him since his immune system is a lot more compromised than anything. True. So. It would have to be, I, I don't know if we could just do another cat with FIV or not, but uh, for now, we're just going to stick with the one, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but uh, no, it, it's good. So we've, uh, you know, we've been donating to this company and everything. So they're, they're fantastic. If you ever want to check That's them out, great. it's Forever yep. Home. Okay. Shameless plug. Yeah. Well, not shameless at all. <laughs> That's they, awesome. Do they do dogs too? They or? do dogs as well. Yes. Okay. Yep. So they're more of the based type of shelter that, like I said before, saves a lot of animals from euthanasia. Okay. Mm-hmm. You also just made the jump to the PS5. Yes. <laughs> How's that been for you? I can't believe I forgot to mention that. Well, for one, big shout out to my wife, uh, who was gracious enough to say, yes, just get it, mm. while rolling her eyes. <laughs> <laughs> no, we recently just got a new TV as well, so we kind of spoiled ourselves. Um, after our cat had passed, we went on a little bit of a shopping spree just oh, to... Yeah get some retail therapy 
Uh, so we got a big 65-inch OLED and convinced her to get a uh, PS5. And I'm so upset I haven't had it since it launched because it is <laughs> absolutely fantastic. I can't get enough of, for one, the just the look of it, mm-hmm. playing videos and video oh, yeah. games and everything. It's stunningly beautiful. And those load times. It's incredible. I can't get over it. Yeah. It's fantastic so how is gaming ever going to get better than it is right now i don't know i don't know (laughs) it's so good right now you know what i mean i mean it's at this point we're just going to be getting into better and better graphics but they're already so stunning like i was playing ghost of tsushima and that game is breathtaking like japan during you know when genghis khan was conquering japan and stuff like that just depicted in that way in the video game it's breathtaking. Like you do like sit down for like haikus in the game and it's like <laughs> blissful scenery and sunsets. It's and then, stunning. And then you jump to Sekiro. Yep. <clears throat> yeah, that's a that's a fun game, right? Yeah, but <laughs> turning 40 and having a near heart attack while playing that game is a wise choice. But, uh, <laughs> like I was telling you guys before we started here, I, uh, I'm bouncing back and forth between that and Stray since they're very like polar opposite games so i get like the frustration and fun from <laughs> and then i get the calm serenity of stray so I yeah, bet. i'm digging it it looks awesome feeny this is your fourth show of the year are you sick of consuming stuff for the podcast yet no i'm oh good let's do more shows let's just kick everyone else off and we'll call it tom and feeny show well not billy he brought us donuts he can stay i did bring donuts yeah, yeah he did so no it's good i mean it's we just have to wiggle it in between kids but so far we're doing okay so yeah well you're doing phenomenally honey (laughs) i want to take a moment to say thank you to all of our supporters on patreon who made it to our patreon appreciation party yesterday uh we were recording this on august 21st we had our party yesterday we had about a dozen patrons out there we gave an xbox series x away series s series s didn't quite splurge for the uh, the big yeah. one, but it was a good party. Billy, as a host, you got a hand-painted picture of Harry Potter. I did. Yeah. How was the party for you? Well, first, your wife is phenomenal at watercolors. Oh, so she's phenomenal at everything. I am truly grateful for that gift. Oh. It was very thoughtful. You're um, welcome. And the, uh, the door gift of the coffee mug. I'm glad everybody voted for that because I'm one for like always getting coffee mugs. Yep. So that was pretty sweet. Uh, so now that I have a nice pint glass from you guys, uh, the face mask, unfortunately, the strap broke, so I couldn't wear uh, that yeah. anymore. Yeah. Uh, but that and the coffee mug, I mean, you guys go out every year and it was, it's always a blast to come down here and just have a good time with you. The The food's always a great spread. Thank you. Good door, door prizes. And I appreciated the trivia for the prizes this year. That <laughs> was a good touch. I dug that. We had a series of extra prizes. We had the big grand prize, the Xbox Series S that all the patrons were entered into a drawing for, all the patrons that were in attendance. And then we had a series of other prizes that we accumulated over the year, like the Horizon board game, which you wound up with, I Billy. I won that, yes, with my Twinkie answer from <laughs> <laughs> um oh my gosh uh, zombie land zombie land thank you yes uh yeah that is the second board game that i have won from you guys <laughs> so i need to come over here and actually yeah. play yeah yeah <laughs> that'll be fun we also had an autographed jim butcher book we had a collection of the complete works of sherlock holmes mm-hmm. and we had a a frame it was just a picture frame with a post-it inside that said feeny's art here <laughs> my sister was very excited to yeah, win that that was a cool prize yeah, we had a, we had a lot of great stuff, and I, 
I, we don't take it lightly that anyone puts their credit card into Patreon and pledges money to support our independent content. We are so appreciative, and this is just our way of saying thank you, and we wish everyone could make it every year. That's not realistic because we have Jim out in California, we have John in Indiana, we have Eric in Arizona. Not everyone's going to make it to the party every time, but for those of you who can, we really try to go all out just to show our appreciation. Yes, we do, and thank you so much to everyone. Where are you guys at as far as listeners and, like nationwide or even outside the u.s michelle was asking last night exactly where you guys are at these days yeah most shows are around 60 downloads Mm -hmm. tracking for podcasts isn't really an exact science the i upload all of our audio files to a service called podbean and podbean tracks downloads Mm -hmm. so we get about 60 episode or 60 downloads on a standard show up Mm -hmm. to 80 on one of our more popular shows but then streaming, it can't track streaming. So if I want to oh, see what our okay. streaming numbers are, I have to log into Spotify. I have to log into iHeart. I have to log into Stitcher. I have to log into Apple Podcasts Connect. So it's, uh, I don't have, off the top of my head, a clear picture of the streaming, but we're at about 60 downloads per show. And not mm-hmm. everybody listens to podcast downloads. So we're somewhere right. above 60 episodes. You 60 have like listeners. a rough estimate as far as like how many people? Like if you would guess? like mm, No, not really. How about patrons? patrons 25 25 yeah mm-hmm. that's fantastic that's good yeah that's over uh i think it's two full years two and a half years that we've been doing patreon now yeah yeah we're very thankful for everyone who we supports are. the show good for you guys that's Thank awesome you. <laughs> if you'd like to follow us on social you can email the show at overratedpod at gmail.com that's overratedpod at gmail.com you can follow Phoenix at Phoenix Sidlogic OIO on Instagram. Follow me at Tom Sidlogic OIO on Twitter and Instagram. Or follow the show at Facebook.com slash Outside is Overrated. As we were just talking about, you can support the show at Patreon at Patreon.com slash OIO. It's pretty easy. You go to Patreon, you set your pledge, you enter your credit card info, and you're all set. For your support, you receive an invitation to the Patreon Appreciation Party every summer, a giveaway item at the party uh, that will also ship in some occasions. It was a coffee mug this year. It was a uh, pint glass last year. You also get an entry for the grand prize at the party. Last year was a PS5. This year was an Xbox Series X. I got something big in mind for next year. It's like cost is right in line with those, but it's something that everyone's going to like. So uh, support us on Patreon and come to our party. Please sign up at patreon.com slash OIO. We start our show today with the early career of Peter Jackson. In my opinion, Peter Jackson has had a fascinating career from his early days making horror to creating the epic nerd trilogy of the Lord of the Rings to his more recent work with documentaries. He has grown and evolved throughout our lifetime. Would either of you like to guess where he ranks amongst top grossing directors of all time? Well, you sir, we Yeah, I spoiled that it, for so you. you. But Billy. Oh. <laughs> where he ranks as top grossing? Well, if it's including like Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit, he's got to be up there. So I'm going to go with like top five. He is in the top five. Ooh. Third. Fourth. Dang. <laughs> yeah, number one is Spielberg. Yep. Two and three are the Russo brothers. Anthony, I forget the other one. Mm-hmm. And then it's uh, Peter Jackson at number four. I find it fascinating because I was talking to him about it. It's like, where's George Lucas? You know? Oh. But I guess he hasn't been as prolific as Spielberg, I guess, maybe. I don't know. But you'd think Star Wars would be up there. You would think so, yeah. Yeah. But he didn't do the more recent trilogy, so he did That's six true. movies. Yeah, he did yeah. six, and that was 
you know, from 1978 through yeah. 2004. Cool. So Spielberg has done a crazy amount of movies. I think he's done like 32. The Russo brothers are both around eight. I think Peter <clears throat> Jackson was about 16. Mm-hmm. And then I stopped reading the list because I found my guy. <laughs> Peter Jackson's first full-length film was Bad Taste in 1987. Oh, we forgot to watch the trailer on that. Oh, yeah, we did. That was followed by Meet the Feebles in 1989, a puppet movie, Dead Alive in 1992, and Heavenly Creatures in 1994. Do either of you have an affinity for any of those movies? I haven't seen any of them. Well, we uh, rented um, Heavenly Creatures from the library, so we squeezed that one in. And Kate Winslet's in that movie. An 18-year-old Kate Winslet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> really? It's a fascinating movie. You can tell it's a Peter Jackson film with some of the effects, but reading up on it is... It's based on a murder that occurred in New Zealand in the 50s? I think 1954. Oh, okay. Yeah, I can't remember the year, but his wife, um, friend or partner, um, she was intrigued by the story as a kid, and she wanted to do this story, so she asked him to do it. Mm-hmm. And so they did it, and um, it's very interesting. I think they took some liberties with things here and there. I know the woman that was ousted from about the movie because she's Kate Winslet's character, Juliet. Mm-hmm. She, she changed her name, and when the movie came out, someone did some research and found out she's Anne Perry, the mystery author. And she's pretty famous. She has the longest standing mystery series out there. And she's um, actually, her books are never out of print. And so she's very loved for a mystery author. But I know lately she's been having to ask more, do interviews or try to avoid. Because she was outed by this? Yeah. Unintentionally. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. No, it's a crazy story. But I mean. I thought the movie was really interesting. It like, is an interesting story. Heavenly but... Creatures might be my favorite Peter Jackson film. Really? I mean, it's hard to compare that to like The Fellowship of the Ring. Yeah, I would say. But <laughs> Heavenly Creatures was a quirky, weird thing, and like I didn't know where it was going, and I was super into it when we were watching it. Yeah, the story draws you in and takes you through the whole movie. Um, but it is the effects you can tell is Peter Jackson with the clay figures. You can see his touch to it. Mm-hmm. I think that's where Weta actually was developed was for this film and it's really interesting because like they have this fantasy world that they go to in their head and it's all these like clay Clay full-size figures because it's two girls that are working on a novel together and so like in their heads they go and visit this fantasy world see that would be cool because i mean i I do appreciate what a workshop's practical effects that they do like they're phenomenal and yeah even back in the early early 90s yeah they did an incredible job Mm -hmm. and um so yeah if i read if i remember correctly i think it's that's when it was created with richard taylor was in this movie so but interesting film heavenly creatures but that's not what we're here to discuss today (laughs) no no in 1996 the frighteners came out it was jackson's first film with a major movie star michael j fox and he credits the special effects assets he compiled for the film as a launching board for doing a fantasy film aka the lord of the rings the frighteners was a major springboard for jackson and i wanted to take some time to discuss that film it's a horror comedy fox's character can see the deceased and he teams up with a couple of them to shake people down like he's basically a supernatural con man in the beginning of the film yeah then a big bad comes and starts murdering people like crazy fox teams up with a departed douche his widowed wife and tries to avoid a kooky fbi agent as he tries to find the killer I hadn't watched this movie for over 10 years. I thought we'd start with when we first watched this movie. Billy, when did you first see The Frighteners? I gotta say, probably in 
after a couple of years after the movie came out. You know, I've always liked horror and thriller movies, so that's definitely something I watched. But when I rewatched it last night with Michelle, I couldn't remember a darn thing. It was <laughs> just, I was laughing the entire time, too. I was very similar. Like, I remembered, I had watched it before, but it had been more than a decade. And I remembered really liking it and being surprised by how much I liked it. But I didn't remember anything, anything at all about Not it. Not a thing. No. Feeny? Um, I never saw it when it came out. Um, my brother actually gave it to me as a birthday present one year. I'm like, what's the Frighteners? And he made me sit down and watch it. And it was in my early 20s. And I thought it was a very interesting film and very quirky when I first saw it. And I didn't remember much of it until we rewatched it. I was like, oh, that's right. in the scene. So I remember a lot of the chasing and the ghosts, but that was it. But Well, what stood out to us coming back to this movie? For me, I just didn't like it as much. Like, I think it's still fine. I still enjoyed it, but I thought it was like a nine previously, and now I think it's more like a seven, just to put random numbers on it. I thought Michael J. Fox was really good. He's always good. Yeah, he, he is. He really is. He's always good. Um I got to ask you guys, because Michelle and I were talking about it mm -hmm. when we were watching it last night. Beetlejuice was made in 1988. This was made in 96. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah in 96, yeah. I felt that Beetlejuice vibe, the way that it was filmed and acted and like the comedy. Like I was trying um... to think, like, were they banking off of that whole... I'm not sure. I haven't seen Beetlejuice in Beetlejuice well over 20 years. Type of work and stuff well, because it seems it it had that feel to it. Not yeah. that it was like a blatant knockoff. Oh yeah. You know they weren't like trying to, you know, hop on the coattails of it or anything like that. But it felt like it had some influence from it just by the way it was some of the overacting at times mm -hmm. and some of the comedy. You know. Yeah. And then the soundtrack alone too. Oh, true. That Holly, uh, that uh, Hollywood, that um, Halloweeny kind of chorus and stuff and choir in the background and it's I, I just thought it was something interesting to talk about because we were discussing that last night and i wanted to get your guys's opinion on that yeah it's, i haven't seen beetlejuice since i was a kid so i don't really have a thought have on to it rewatch beetlejuice again. it's been a long time for me too it still holds up to this day is huh. um have either of you guys seen tales of the crypts episodes i have oh, back in the day yeah, yeah. absolutely it does it feel like that? Because I know it was originally written for Tales of the Crypts, and the person who read it, Robert, whatever, the the big name. Zemeckis. Yes. Mm -hmm. He says, no, this can't be an episode. We have to make it a movie. So he had Peter do it as a movie. So I'd have to re-watch some Tales from the Crypt. It's been a yeah, while since i watched Yeah, I just that. didn't know if you guys felt like it was more... What I recall from Tales of the Crypt was creepy vignettes. Like, there's one in a circus in particular that stands out to me, but I have never been much of a horror fan. Like, I have a... I've seen some horror movies, but my threshold is very, very yeah, low. Yeah, me too. But, yeah, I mean... It, it has its quirkiness. It has some sort of comedy. I don't know if if the original script was that comedy-based or with Michael J. Fox coming in, if they mm -hmm. changed it a little bit. But I think I read that he really wanted Michael J. Fox, so maybe it was written that way because he wrote it for him. But Michael just was not giving a yes at the time. Mm -hmm. He was toying with doing um, The Island of Dr. Murrow. Oh, really? And he passed on it, which mm. luckily he did. But, <laughs> <laughs> but I can't remember who they had lined up to fill in his shoes if he didn't do it. I don't think they had anybody. I think it was only written for him, and I think they nobody else auditioned for it. Oh, okay. So they were really hoping that he would do it. Yeah. I mean, 
it has its charm with the quirkiness and some of the humor in well the thing that really stands out is the cgi and the effects that's yeah. that's the hallmark of this film yeah and it's something you both mentioned on the show notes here what effects really stood out to you well definitely death i mean at that time i can't imagine watching it in the theaters at the time that mm. it came out because at that time we didn't really have that much effects you know and some of the things that they do here like there's a uh, there's this supernatural creature that's coming to collect souls and like he will like bend through walls and like run through walls and you'll see like this head coming through and it's uh i mean it maybe doesn't look great compared to today's effects but for the time it was groundbreaking work yeah it was yeah i agree I mean, the, you can tell with a Peter Jackson film, his effects. Mm -hmm. I think that's his signature mark on films is his effects. Yep. And, you know, you can really see his um, groundbreaking effects with the computers in this movie. And, you know, and it's fun to see what they're able to do and still be able to enjoy the effects without. It is dated, but it's not that dated yet. So right. you can still sort of enjoy the, and appreciate the effects at that time. Mm -hmm. This is completely off topic, but you know what would be an interesting ending for The Lord of the Rings? If Sam pushes Frodo in. If Sam's like, this is b I carried you up to this GD mountain. You are not turning around now. There is no going back, Frodo. Shove. Shove. End roll credits. We're bringing up Lord of the Rings now. <laughs> Just popped into my head. Okay. <laughs> Billy, you liked Jake Busey in this Jake film. Jake Busey. When's the last time you saw him? Starship Troopers. Starship Troopers. Yep, exactly. It's the only That's other exactly film I can think of. I was of. thinking of. I was like, oh my God. I saw his name flash up in the beginning credits, and I was like, oh yeah, Jake Busey. Yeah, I never put him and <clears throat> Gary Busey together. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So both uh, equally as big nut jobs. Oh, really? <laughs> I enjoyed the guy who was the douche. Oh, the FBI agent. Not him. The the husband. one who died. The, the husband. husband. The, the husband Ray, right? Yeah, Ray, I think. Yeah, he was kind of good. It would be interesting to see him in something else to see what he's mm -hmm. like as an actor. Like what his range is. Yeah. I had a little hard time with the FBI guy. I think it was a little too over the top for me. I thought that character was kind of unnecessary. Well, I just didn't understand what he was like going for. Like, Yeah. It seemed like he was trying to convince Michael J. Fox to kill himself. It, he was like deep undercover and like cults or something yeah. like that. And that's why he got all crazy and then just became like overly obsessed with Michael J. Fox's character. Yeah. It just, I, I felt like it was too over the top, too much. I mean, maybe if it was toned down, it wasn't too, I don't know. And what's with weird. the fifth element haircut that he had? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but otherwise... All the actors, I mean, Michael J. Fox, I love him. He's, I love his work, mm -hmm. and it's fun to see him. And it was a running gig in the movie to have him break through picket fences because it started with... Um, uh, I can't remember. It started with Back to the Future. Sure. Uh, he crashes the DeLorean through a white picket fence, and then in Doc Hollywood, the opening of that yep. film, he crashes his car through really? a white yeah. picket fence. Really? I didn't know that was a thing that cared. <laughs> yeah, oh, that's so fantastic. It, Peter continued that tradition and did it a awesome. couple times in the movie. Because I laughed at that when he... <laughs> Drove back through the fence after he gets. This and apparently, it took with some, that guy. it took something crazy like twenty-seven takes to get it right too. <laughs> the other thing I found interesting when we first watched the movie was, to me, I had a feel of Dresden from the book by Jim Butcher, and I was like, okay, did this influence his character Dresden? Because 
you know, he's wearing the overcoat like Dresden does. He's driving a Beetle that has all these different parts because in the books, his he drives a Volkswagen and he has a red door and different pieces, other colors, so it's multicolored mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. just had that feeling. It's like I was like, huh, almost feels like he was influenced by Frighteners. But That's interesting. Not sure completely yet. Yeah, no, I definitely see the comparison. Yeah, well, and he's investigator like Harry Dresden is too, but, but. Here's an interesting question. Is this a film that we enjoy in 2022? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was a difficult one. Yes and no. I, I, I enjoy how bad it is, if that makes sense. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's one of those movies that you come back to maybe on Halloween and you watch and you're like, God, this movie. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So, yes and no. I didn't think it was a good movie. But I think, like, if you were to, like, watch that and then Beetlejuice and then Hocus Pocus and stuff, like, around Halloween time, yeah. it's a movie you could have on in the background, like, at a party or something like True. that. No, I agree. I mean, I enjoy it. I enjoy um, watching Michael J. Fox and, you know, I, you know, like Billy says, Halloween time, it's fun. I don't know if we'll share it with the girls or not, if it won't be high on our list, but maybe if we get into the tradition of watching some movies for Halloween, maybe mm-hmm. it'll come into the repertoire. But um, Ernest Halloween maybe would be on the list. I don't know. Yeah, that movie terrified me when it came out. Right? <laughs> My dad scared the crap out of us. But um, he dropped us and some friends off at the movie theater and said goodbye to us and we're sitting there waiting for the movie to start and all of a sudden he jumps over the seat really? yelling boo and the popcorn just goes everywhere it's just like but no i agree i think it's one of those movies that maybe around halloween you would watch mm-hmm. or if it's on tv you know but it's not right. something you're i'm going to purposely put in to watch no so for me this movie is almost like retro gaming it's like a, it's a piece of history uh, and like the yeah. history of special effects so i have an appreciation for it and where it took peter jackson's career uh but it's not something that i ever really see us going back to well it's interesting how this was the jumping board to lord of the rings you know it's right. just watching uh the little bit on the dvd um he talks about um that he had these computers for the effects he didn't know what to do with them after he had no idea what to do he's like well maybe i'll do a fantasy movie and so and that's how they said it came about but also turns out um was it universal that came i think it was universal yeah after frighteners they came to him and asked him to do king kong and really because of this movie but because of the effects in this film yeah and then they Peter put it on hold because he wanted to do Lord of the Rings Mm -hmm. first. That's cool. Yeah. Well, we've talked about this film a bit already, but what were some of the weaknesses that stood out to us? You both commented that it was maybe too long. Uh, A little long in parts. I mean, with the FBI agent and his quirkiness and just, you know, some of those scenes I think could have been cut down a little bit. Um, Again, maybe Billy's right. He wasn't that necessary to be in the story, but... um, yeah, I feel like it could have been more of a shorter or an episode type Tales of the Crypts type thing. But So you're saying that Robert Zemeckis was wrong? <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know. In 1996, maybe he was right. I don't know. <laughs> At the time, here now in uh, 2022, it's maybe could have been shorter. Yeah, let's edit this stuff down. <laughs> 
Um, one of the things that bugged me, I really like the effects for the ghosts in this film. Like yeah. all of the specters that Fox sees and interacts with, I thought that was really cool and they're really interesting. But one thing that they did that bugged me was that the rules for the undead didn't seem very well established. Like sometimes they could pass through stuff, sometimes they couldn't. Like, it, like all this wonky stuff seemed to happen to the ghosts, and like I just didn't understand the parameters that they were working in so it bothered me especially when michael j fox has a near-death experience and becomes one of those ghosts it's like i don't know what he's capable of i don't know what he can or can't do right yeah no interesting yeah i didn't even think about all that mm-hmm. so yeah like when the i always forget his name the husband that passed i think it was ray ray when ray passed and he was stuck in the grave as they were burying it and he couldn't get out but like and passed through walls and stuff so, yeah yeah, yeah was, exactly very confusing at first for for sure, but again, you just kind of one of those things where you shrug it off. Oh well, yeah, it's supernatural. They can do whatever they want. Comedy thriller movie from 1996. What are you gonna do? No, that's very true. I guess you guys are right with the whole grave scene. It's like, but that was confusing. Well, I guess they just had to for the scene. He's antsy as to save him. Right. Yeah, that's all. But yeah, well, the Frighteners. It is a horror comedy that has some interesting effects. It was a major springboard for Jackson's career, but I don't know if we're wholeheartedly recommending it for anyone. Uh, great Halloween film. That's maybe the time of year to check it out. Yeah, I'd go with yeah. that. I mean, I would probably watch Heavenly Creatures over the Frighteners if anyone wants to be introduced to early Peter Jackson. Mm-hmm. I can't say anything about Meet the Feebles or Bad Taste because we could not find those to watch. Yeah, Meet else. the Feebles is on something called Tubi. I'm like, I'm not going to download the Tubi app. <laughs> no. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, Tom, I don't know if you knew this or not, but I was shadowing a priest the other day on an exorcism. For business or pleasure? <laughs> Both. Um, so anyway, uh, while reciting a psalm and I was spraying some holy water, I tripped over my robe and really tweaked my shoulder. So I'm looking to see if you have a place that I could go to to maybe get it looked at. Definitely, Billy. Definitely. Check out Premier Health. They have solutions for back pain, neck pain, car accident, and exorcism-related injuries, and more. We suggest seeing Dr. Camille in Golden Valley, Minnesota. Learn more at PremierHealthMN.com. That's PremierHealthMN.com. We're going to move on to our top five. It's time now for... Tom Awesome's Top 5 Countdown. Five, four, three, two, one. For our top five today, Billy is going to rank the five best moments from Peter Jackson's Tolkien works, yeah. one of which we will name by name and one of which we will not. <laughs> <laughs> well, take it away, Billy. Number five. Yeah. Um, so it's 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 been uh, it's been a few months since I went through these, so you'll have to forgive me on uh, remembering certain facts here and, and whatnot. Uh, but uh, to start it off. For me, I thought uh, just because I needed to throw something from the Hobbit in here to bug the shit out of you, um, <laughs> the riddle scene with uh, Smeagol, and um, that was just that was our first introduction to um, Bilbo getting the ring. You know, so that's like what kickstarted everything when he found the ring in Smeagol's cave, and they go through the riddles with each other. And then he tricks him at the end and he goes, what's in my pocket? And he can't figure it out. And uh, I I thought that was just 
a pinnacle moment because it was also in the book. Yeah. You know what I mean? So that was a big part of the book. And that moment is one of my favorite moments in a work of fiction mm-hmm. from the book. It's such an interesting scene. And like Bilbo knows that he's going to die. He right. knows that there's no way out of this situation, that this horrible creature is going to cheat and somehow figure it out. And like it just pure happenstance that he touches something in his pocket and goes, whoa, what do I have in my pocket? Because we all speak out loud when we right. touch something unsurprising <laughs> in our pockets. It's true. Right. Uh, it's an interesting choice. I I saw the first Hobbit movie in the theater. The only impression that I retained from that, other than hating it with the burning fiery passion, was right. the scene with the trolls that they changed. I don't remember the portrayal of this moment from the film. Was it good? Well, it's later, right? Or with is... the trolls? No, with um, oh, I'm sorry. The, the riddles. riddles. The riddles. Yeah, the riddles is in the second. Or... Oh, in the Christ! Second I didn't movie. even see the no. You, yeah. you haven't even seen it, man. Right? Yeah, it's when they get to in the <laughs> these <laughs> movies. These. <laughs> Movies. I told you the this Hobbit was going to happen, Phoenix. It's not that I long a book. I told you this was going to happen. Three, three-hour yes, movies. Like, I believe that. I just I... want to mention that Tom swore, like the first. No, no, I said. Oh, I'm sorry, okay. Tom swore the second. So I'm just. <laughs> we're how many minutes in? Uh, thirty-two-ish. Thirty-two. Pretty minutes. good. I believe that the Hobbit could be a fine movie. I believe that it's an interesting tale that could really benefit from. Uh, visual storytelling but just mm-hmm. oh i cannot believe the cluster that these movies turned into like the hallmark scene from the book is not even in the first movie right. it's over three hours into the film franchise oh my god well i you know it is a very pivotal scene and it's um it i think he did an excellent job capturing it from the book mm-hmm. you know he wanted to give it um the do that it needed because it's a very important scene in the story because yep. It leads to everything else that happens, but in the Lord of the Rings and everything. But I think, you know, I think he did an excellent job. I just, I, I think know. he did an excellent job counting all the money that rolled in in those dump trucks of well, releasing yeah. these three films. <laughs> Are you kidding me? Of course he did. And yeah, I mean, I'd sell my soul. Like, I would do a horrible adaptation of anything on this podcast for a dump you, truck full of money. If they handed you exactly a dump truck full of money and they said, you're going to make a, a, a 200 plus page book into three movies, Tom, and here's all the money in the world, you're going to go, no, man, I'm sticking to my morals. <laughs> While I agree with you, I would jump that off Hobbit, that soapbox. <laughs> oh my god, The Hobbit, 100% should have been made into a three, three and a half hour movie, and they could have done it just fine. Yeah, just fine. I, I mean, they are what they are. I mean, they're enjoyable. I mean, no, in they're ways. not. In it was ways, like it was like but, yeah. You know, it's just it at least introduces people to you know sort of what happened before the lord of the rings but i mean yeah things could have been done better Mm -hmm. i mean he could have done a shorter he could have done what i think is interesting was he wasn't originally tabbed to direct these films he was going to produce them and i wonder how that would have changed it was originally going to be two films directed by guillermo del toro Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. then del toro backed out and so peter jackson wound up directing them i wonder i mean i wonder if i could have possibly enjoyed these films or if i was just cursed to hate them forever well, like the Baganses. Well, the interesting thing is I read that he approached Vigo to be in the Hobbit movie. He wanted to put Strider in there in his mm-hmm. 20s, and Vigo yep. downright refused. He did not want to be a part of it. Yeah. Strider! 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 But, no, I, it's a great scene, and mm-hmm. I think he... The scenes that were important in the Hobbit, I think he did justice to those scenes. Yep. Except for the troll, I know you frustrated that. 
It wasn't Gandalf. Yeah. <laughs> That's a pretty big departure. Does it have to do with that you played Gandalf in the play? No. I mean, I love Gandalf. I'm Gandalf is one of my favorite fictional characters. But that is also what I view a very pivotal moment, not just in The Hobbit, but in the entire Lord of the Rings. Because Gandalf oh, really? gets this party together. He sends them off into the world. And uh, they get into trouble. Trolls are going to eat all the dwarves. And Gandalf has to come back and save them. It shows that Gandalf is watching over them. Like, they're um. not aware that he is still investing in them. They think that Gandalf is gone and that they're completely on their own. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it turns out he was still there like a guardian angel when they needed them. Uh, okay. But no, we'll just have Bilbo do it. <laughs> Hobbit films. He does, he does split the rock and turn him into stone from the sunlight, though. So Gandalf does save them. I they don't extend it with Bilbo trying to save them and get the ponies. But Gandalf does come and they split the, he splits the rock with his staff. And the sunlight comes in and turns them all into stone. So while they meandered off from the actual storyline from the book they did put him in there could it have been done better absolutely but you got to extend that three and a half hour movie yes. up somehow <laughs> the hobbit films are dead to me number four billy <laughs> i'm just gonna go with I'll, I'll take it both from lord of the rings and the hobbit but anytime i see the introduction of the shire or a shot of the shire it just brings a smile to my face i think we were given a beautiful world from tolkien and Peter Jackson did a phenomenal job at doing that. Just the beautiful scenery and the I happiness. Ag- I agree. The scene that stands out to me regarding the Shire is the opening to Fellowship of the Ring. Gandalf mm-hmm. is yeah. just rolling into town. Frodo sees him. It's a joyous meeting. And then you have the birthday party and the fireworks. And I think I think that scene in the Shire is truly beautiful. I can't remember the Shire post uh, track two Mordor. Was that still interesting at the end of Return of the King? I've only seen that film once because of another nerd rage incident with <laughs> Peter Jackson's Tolkien works. Um, yeah, it, I, but you guys talking about the innocence of the Shire and the beauty and everything. I, I think he did an excellent job portraying the Shire because it becomes important later. I think is it two towers where uh, Pippin and um, Mary Merryweather are talking, and Pippin just wants to go back to the Shire. Mm-hmm. Merryweather's, you know, saying there won't be a Shire. Right. You know, if they just, don't do this, there won't be a Shire. Yeah, it just shows their innocence because Pippin hasn't quite caught up to everything. Yeah. So they're kind of out of touch with what's mm-hmm. happening. So I agree. He did a beautiful job portraying that beauty and the innocence. He did, and... They're old enough movies, right? But I'll still say it. Spoiler. Um, in both The Return of the King and from the Lord of the Rings trilogy and the Battle of the Five Armies, they did a really interesting thing. I thought Jackson did it well where when they return to the Shire after everything's done, after the after the ring has been thrown into Mount Doom and then after the dwarves get their keep back in the mountain and everybody returns back home there's no celebration that's true there there's isn't. no ticker tape parade from the shire very quiet bilbo in the hobbit excuse me in the battle of the five armies comes back and everybody in the shire thought he was dead so they were selling all of his stuff oh, from his right, home <laughs> um in the lord of the rings return of the king all three of uh, four of them excuse me go back to the shire and they're just kind of sitting by themselves at a pub and no one's talking to them. Yeah. Everybody's just going about their lives. So it no was like, yeah. I thought that was really interesting because they, they, you know, 
they were on this such epic adventure and no one in the Shire had anything on, you know, any idea what was going on. Actually, that's interesting. You're talking about it now, like with uh, what we're going to be talking about the documentary mm-hmm. about how he's touching on what happened to the soldiers who came home from World War yep. One, And he's showing that they just fought a war and came home and the people had no idea. And so just you talking about mm-hmm. made me realize that he captured what happened to soldiers with yeah. World War One mm-hmm. in that scene. So. so are we saying the Shire needs some smartphones and 24-hour <laughs> news cycle? <laughs> well, I know he wrote um, Lord of the Rings based off of, I know, the Industrial Age, but also with World War One. was it? Was that influenced in his work, a Tolkien? Or... That I don't know. Okay, I'm, I'm sure. trying to remember all that. But... I'd like to look that up, though. That's yeah. interesting. Uh, so, yes, the Shire. Yes. Always great. And I mean, the first lines of the book are, oh my God, I'm going to get, I'm going to butcher this. So forgive (laughs) me, please. But the first lines in the Hobbit book are, there was a hole in the ground and there lived a Hobbit. You know what I mean? So they describe it right then and there. We're introduced to the Shire like page one. Mm -hmm. So I I think he captured that brilliantly from the book, from Tolkien's work Mm -hmm. to Peter Jackson putting it on the film. So number four, Shire. Uh, number three, uh, the Siege of Minas Tirith, which is the hour-long-plus battle of Gondor. And that is in the uh, Return of the King, correct? Uh, this is, yeah, so this is the uh, the final battle. Yeah, the final battle. Yeah, the final battle. I mean, this is Jackson to a T when it comes yes. to his <laughs> battle scenes. You know what I mean? He can stretch something out for an hour long, you know, whereas you get fight scenes in movies these days. Yeah. And they might be anywhere from five to maybe 30 minutes, but this stretched forever. And it kept your attention the entire time. It didn't get uh, exhausting. No, it didn't. And I agree. I That battle is one of my favorites um, watching the film, especially in the theaters. I loved hearing the sound of the horses mm-hmm. coming. And I loved how he, um, you're in the middle of the battle and they're fighting and then you get a wave of help coming. Yep. And you see them and how they're the riders of Rohan and everything. And then you get the third wave with um, Aragon on the ship. And I mm-hmm. love that scene when they pull up and... <laughs> Like, who are you going to fight us with? Right. And then all of a sudden the ghosts come off the yes. ship and just take yeah. over. It's just beautifully done. It really was. And I love the humor that he was able to tie through the film with Legolas and um, Gimli. Mm-hmm. You know, the count, body count and everything. Oh, when the elephant goes down. Yeah. That still only counts <laughs> as one. one. <laughs> you know. No, he. I agree with you, Billy. He does an incredible job with his battle scenes, the effects, <laughs> everything mm-hmm. was put together. But... He, he kept your attention, and that can be hard with um, fight scenes, war scenes. It can. It can get long, or you get confused, like with Game of the Thrones with the fight. It was. I don't know why they filmed it so dark, but you know, you, oh, at the end of Game of Thrones, yeah, yeah, you just. Well, you get really good battles too in yeah. Game of Thrones, like Battle of the. It was probably one of my favorite fights from that series, but that... then like you get the end with like the Windwalkers, and you're like, what the. What is happening? Yeah. <laughs> well, it was just dark. I couldn't keep track who's who sometimes. Right. I was yeah. like, you know, so it's nice when you can actually see what's going on and be engaged with the battle because mm-hmm. if you lose your audience, you're kind of, you know, lose them and they get confused. So, yep. Yeah. Yeah, I don't have a lot of thoughts. I, uh, I've only seen Return of the King once. <laughs> I remember Aragon and the Ghosts. 
I hope you rewatch them again because they are great, yeah, great films to watch. I know you don't care for the Hobbit trilogy, but the Lord of the Rings trilogy is. Yeah, it's pretty good. It's 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 a great watch. If you, I know you don't have free time because of your children, but if you ever do get some free time and you have 12 and a half hours on your hands, then like, it'll, it'll be fun <laughs> when we can actually introduce them to the LOTR films. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Well, it just, I think Return of the King is a great film, and I know your reason for not watching it when it first for like came. a decade i know and then i had you watch it but you made me honey i know I you made forced you. me to watch return of the least king against my will at least i didn't make you watch titanic <laughs> no, i watched titanic i know you will okay, I when's that brings it? You. <laughs> so number three was the siege of minas tirith number two billy number two uh the um Gandalf's battle with Balrog in the Mines of Moira. You shall not pass. What an iconic scene that we've gotten from from Lord of the Rings, Fellowship of the Ring. Um, It's just, yeah. Beautifully well done. What a sad scene, too, where they think they've lost Gandalf. And the Balrog looks awesome. Balrog like, oh my God. Terrifying. (laughs) He was terrified. A flame whip, the fire sword. What a great scene. So, yeah, I had to put that as number two. It was, it was, it was a, it was a battle, <laughs> no, no pun intended. It was a battle between number one and number two for it was, me. Yeah, I mean, I think it's incredible. I just love like how he portrayed the buildup mm-hmm. to the Balrog and then the after effect. And you just you don't leave the theater with dry eyes, you oh, know. Yeah. And then you keep going. And oh, I never you... cry in a movie, honey. I am a man. <laughs> I'm a man. If you get your heartbroken with Gandalf, and then later, mm-hmm. which you'll talk about, is just another heartbreaking scene. Yep. It's just, I mean, the Fellowship, I think, is just an incredible movie. It's and so well done. It, it's just amazing. It really is. And I mean, yeah, it's just it's a incredible scene. Mm-hmm. My dad will play that game with Daisy. He he'll stomp his feet and says, "You shall not pass." And she'll try to <laughs> figure out how to squeeze through. Oh, I love that. That's <laughs> yeah, very fun. Also, number two. I mean, I'm I'm right with you. That was a great scene in the book. Great scene in the movie. Yep. Peter Jackson nailed that. Your honorable mentions. Yes, Boromir's death. Yeah, I'm glad um, you brought this one up. Yeah, why does it stand out with you? And then I'm gonna—I have a lot of thoughts around this as well. Well, the 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 comedic value just between us fans of Sean Bean is he just <laughs> dies in every movie, so yeah, he, he gets—we get another epic Sean Bean can't get a break scene. Um, well, actually, but, he has a great show, Sharps. He never dies in that. He really? Oh, I have not heard of that. Okay, yeah, Sharps Rifles. It's based off a of Burn Cornwall series, but yeah, he never dies. Well, in good that. for Sean Payne. I'm glad he got. A, <laughs> I'm glad he got a, his redemption. Um, I, I thought this was a beautifully done, unfortunate death scene. The ring was obviously starting to take control of him, and you know he betrayed the fellowship. Um, and he tries to snatch the ring from Frodo. And he has, yeah, absolutely. And he realizes this and kind of makes up for it and saves uh, Pippin and Mary, I think, from getting killed at one point. And as he's dying, being shot by these gigantic arrows, um, you know, him and Aragon have a, a nice scene together as he's passing and, you know, mm-hmm. asks for forgiveness and everything. Um, so with Sean Bean dying, I thought they gave him a good death in this, you know, rather than just getting like his head chopped off or something, you know, they, Dead. they, they, they gave him a redeeming factor where he was like realizing what was happening and tried to make up for it. And it cost him his life. Well, I think it's such an in- interesting thing because the core, the core 
tenant of the Lord of the Rings is that the ring corrupts whoever it touches. And I will beg on Frodo endlessly for getting all the way to the end of the journey and saying, nope, this is mine. Peace out, homies. <laughs> but this scene with Boromir, and I have very strong feelings for both Boromir and his brother Faramir. I think they're mm-hmm. both awesome characters, and I love them both. I think this is so interesting because it shows how quickly the ring can corrupt a good person. Because yes. Although Boromir thought that he was doing the right thing for the right cause, like it just shows how quickly the ring can act. And it by comparison, it shows how strong in character Frodo is to resist the ring for so long to get all the way up to the end before it fully corrupts him. Mm-hmm. So I just thought, I think it's such an interesting scene and such a great setup for the entire Lord of the Rings. I'm glad you chose this particular scene, and I thought it was portrayed really well in the film. I agree that Fellowship is just a masterpiece. It wasn't until uh, The Two Towers that I had my nerd rage with the LOTR movies. Oh, Ferdinand Faramir, yeah. How they, he changed his character, but... Yeah, he had him corrupted by the ring instantly. And what's so interesting about Faramir to me, <laughs> thank you for setting me off on this tangent, Faramir, Frodo actually offers the ring to Faramir. He says, yes. here, take In this. I don't want this anymore. Take it. And Faramir says, oh, hell no. Yep. And he uh, gives Frodo some supplies and sends Frodo on his way in the books. And I thought that was interesting because nobody else has ever turned down the ring in The Lord of the Rings. And, well, I guess uh, Gandalf turned down and the one Aragorn ring as well. does. No, he doesn't. In the movie. I don't know about the books. So. I can't remember in the books. But the point is, Faramir is great. <laughs> and, uh, and Peter Jackson changed it in the movies and had him capture Frodo and bring him to Gondor to try to use the power of the ring, essentially falling into the same trap that Boromir did. And, right. Um, I don't know. I just hated that twist with the character, and it kind of ruined the entire uh, second film for me. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I agree. I mean, the whole scene with Sean Bean, uh, just him telling Frodo to run, him trying to save Pippin and Merriweather, and, you know, the death scene, you know, those arrows going in him, and him and Vigo do an excellent job of that scene, you know, the death scene. And it's so great when he recognizes him as his king, because he refuses yep. through the whole thing, movie, you're not, we don't need a king. Yeah. And then at the end, he t- tells him, you're my king. Mm-hmm. And... Yeah, again, it's just a beautifully done scene. Great battle scene, too. You know, the fight scene, everything. Did you watch much of the extras? Of- Not too much. I think that'll be my next oh, go through there. because I'm just watching digitally right now. So, oh, okay. Or no, I was, I'm sorry. I was watching them on all DVD and stuff. So, okay. If yeah. you can watch the extras, the cast is great. Yeah. They t- go through the whole uh, fellowship. And turns out Sean Bean could not ride in the helicopter he did one helicopter ride up the mountain for the snow stuff Mm -hmm. and he absolutely refused he was terrified really so they're talking about they're flying up in the helicopter they see the little sean bean he actually climbed the mountain to get to the get out of here because he just could not do the of course he did we'll climb a mountain (laughs) helicopter so it's just it's fascinating and if Anyone out there, and you, Billy, and Tom, I should share them with you. You guys should watch the extras. The cast are okay. hilarious when they're talking. And I'll I, make you a deal. I'll watch the extras on the LOTR <laughs> if you never make me watch the Hobbit films. Mm. Deal. Yes. Wow, that was yes. correct. All right. Fair and enough. actually, I guess I'm a little bit more. <laughs> I actually watch the movies with the commentary in the background. That can be pretty hilarious, too. That would be, be really interesting. Fun. Yeah, because they, be they will bounce between, like, um, you might be able to choose, but I think they bounce between. You'll hear the hobbits talking about their scenes, mm-hmm. and those guys together are just hilarious. Oh, yeah. And then they'll jump to Vigo. So they have the actors who are in those scenes, I think, talking. Nice. Yeah. That's awesome. So, but. Great choice for your honorable mention. What is the number one Peter Jackson 
it's, scene from yeah. Tolkien's works. It's the Battle of Helm's Deep. Oh, yeah. No, it's <laughs> one of the most epic battles. It's it's the introduction to what Peter Jackson could do with battle scenes. And he just nailed it. And that was in Two Towers, correct? Right. I get a little hazy on where Fellowship ends, Two Towers begins. Because like I've always in, read the books in succession. So I get a little hazy on where the breakpoints mm-hmm. are. Yeah, it's towards the end of Two Towers. Yep. It sort of ends the film yeah. in ways. So. And it's so well done. It's just yeah. it is yeah. It's, I, I mean, you know, we I, again we've been talking about battles this entire top five because they're darn near this entire podcast <laughs> because they're just he he did them extremely well in the first trilogy. He he just uh, you, you don't get lost, you don't get exhausted from them. No, as, you I'm, don't. I'm sorry for repeating myself, but it's true. It is, you yeah. know. Um, so yeah, I had to go Battle of Helm's Deep as an interesting that. thing about the Battle of Helm's Deep is Legolas's failure to take down the dude who breaches the wall. I can't remember exactly how it was set up in the book, but I believe that this was a very faithful adaptation of that moment because they the Urukai breached the wall, and that's when shit gets real at Helm's yeah. Deep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I thought that was portrayed really well in the film. It's a great um, battle, and it's great because you actually have two kings essentially. Yep you know, arguing points, you know, you have the King of Rohan saying these walls will never be breached and you have Aragon who is knows that this is not the best mm-hmm. thing, you know. But he is just gonna do what he can to keep these people safe. Yeah. And you know, and it's a great scene when that wall gets breached because you see the King of Rohan just like, oh uh-huh. he was right. We can't you get the iconic line too from the movie so it begins so it begins yeah i I don't know what it is just sends chills down my spine every time he says that and then like it just like the pitter patter of the rain as it starts coming down there's just the build-up of that entire battle it it is that's true there is that whole build-up with the rain beautiful i love it was great also with the scene with the elves coming in to help and, and stuff but again watch extras about homestead because it's fantastic but it was a slog for these actors. They were there in the middle of the night mm-hmm. filming in the mud and rain, and they were just so beat. You'll see these pictures of them just exhausted. laying around exhausted, like war soldiers. They're just right. totally just beaten and stuff. But I guess everyone got a t-shirt at the end that said, I survived Helm's Deep. <sighs> so That's awesome. <laughs> but no, I mean, again, same points like we talked about with the um, Ms. Tirith battle. He does a great job, and I love the ending when they're chasing. Well, Gandalf coming down the hill is fantastic with the light and the riders coming down, but also them trying to escape in the trees. And I love the tree scene, too, mm-hmm. with them going after the wizard tower. I thought that was great, too. Yep. Yeah, ends are awesome. Ends are really cool. So, but. so, well done. For number one, Yeah. Helm's Deep. Helm's Deep is good. <laughs> I, one thing that I think is interesting about Tolkien throughout the entire LOTR epic series of books, only Boromir dies. Like, Pippin gets squashed by a troll, for Christ's sakes. <laughs> Somehow they're able to revive him. I'm, I was always so frustrated that Boromir was the only character that, only character of import that dies. I'm trying to think now. Yeah, me yeah. too. Yeah, yeah. And that's true, because... No, King of Rohan dies. Not important. King of Rohan was a wanker. <laughs> you know, Bones... Like was, he wasn't part of the Fellowship. And that's yeah. true. If we're talking about Fellowship, yeah. He's Bones a... was the important one out of uh, Rohan. Bones, Dr. Bones. And, I uh, love him. And what's her name? Eomer and uh, Eowyn. Eowyn. Both yeah. their names start with E. 
Another bone I have to pick with Tolkien. <laughs> Here we go. All of his names, he invented his elvish language, and like all of the names and all of the Tolkien properties, whether it's L-O-T-R or The Hobbit or The Silmarillion, all the names are based on this fictional language. And I'm like, that's great logic. Great logic. But Eomer, Eowyn, Saruman, Sauron, so many names sound so similar. It was. It has always been very challenging for me to keep everyone straight, and it's just a constant frustration when reading Tolkien. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I could I has, definitely agree with that. How bad is it with the one that you're trying to read for prep? Uh, the opening of the Silmarillion is very dry. It's all about <laughs> it's a how... a difficult read, isn't it? I've, uh, I've, I've heard that's a, that's a tough read. Through what I've been through so far, yes. I guess uh, the, the core story of the Silmarils, which is like the heart of the book, it's four books put into one. Like the first book is just the creation of the world or like the god that created the demigods that created the world and uh i'm just getting into like the meat of it now but it is very dry and biblical Mm -hmm. only instead of the bible you have all of these names that sound very similar (laughs) creating middle earth but um i guess real quick i know we should move on but um how excited are you guys for the or worried about the amazon uh show coming out sense of dread Sense of overwhelming sense of dread for me like i hope it's awesome and that i, love I really it. do too I'm, I'm going in with a sense of caution for sure okay. i'll watch it absolutely just because yeah. i love this you know i love the hobbit ruined tolkien for me honey like i i do not believe that there will be another uh adaptation of anything tolkien related that i'll enjoy like lotr was great outside of faramir Nothing else will ever, ever come close to that standard. Well, I guess this will be interesting because we've always talked about, we've been talking about his effects and battles and how he kept mm-hmm. everything interesting. It'll right. be interesting to see how um, Amazon has been, if they can do the same thing. Whether but no to, Frodo, that's a big win. <laughs> <laughs> you know, as, can they keep, I don't know if there's a lot of battles or not in this, but, you know, can they keep them engaged, the audience engaged, you know? Yeah, I'm... So. I'll be ca- I'm cautiously optimistic about it. You okay. know what I mean? I, I, w- I want to go in with just because I just love that whole world yeah. in itself. Um, I'm going to go in with the security blanket <laughs> and probably an ample helping of whiskey and just hoping for the best. Yep, exactly. <laughs> All right. Billy, great top five. What did we miss? Tweet your thoughts at Tom Sidlogic OIO on Twitter. That's at Tom Sidlogic OIO on Twitter. Next, we're going to discuss the middle stage of Peter Jackson's career. After Lord of the Rings released from 2001 to 2003, King Kong came out in 2005. Uh, MGM was so enamored with Jackson's effects in The Frighteners that they wanted to do the monster movie reboot. The original also happened to be one of Peter Jackson's favorite films. He once tried to recreate it in stop motion when he was nine years old. I read about that, yeah. A quick synopsis of the film, this is a major hatchet job, but in the film, Jack Black plays a movie producer who bamboozles a cast and crew into taking a voyage to a remote island. They stumble across a murderous tribe of indigenous people, King Kong, and a series of other horrors. Black films through countless tragedies before they capture the beast and drag him back to New York. Along the way, Naomi Watts and King Kong bond. Then the military kills the big guy. The end. Good. That basically sums up King Kong. Yeah. Yeah, to uh, set the stage here, had either of you seen the original film, the original King Kong? VHS back in the day. Yeah, I I had never seen it. Never? No, the only Kong I've ever seen was Kong Skull Island, which I truly loathed. Well, yeah. Yeah. Uh, no, I haven't seen the original. I've seen clips here and there, mm-hmm. but I've never actually seen it. Yeah, so. 1930 
six, something like that. I can't yeah. remember exactly what the date something was. Something like that. So the remake, I mean, Peter Jackson's reboot, comes out 70 years later in 2005. Yep. I'd never seen this either. Beanie, I know that you were very fond of this film. When did you first see it? I saw it in the theaters because I was into the whole Peter Jackson um, craze, I guess you could say. I was consuming. I get into these crazes where I consume a director, so I try to get all their films or an actor and stuff. And so I immediately went to see it in the theaters. And I, from my recollection, I really enjoyed the film you know i love the 1940s and 50s and 30s and the 20s that whole from 20s to 50s i love that era and it was fun to see it on the screen capturing that i remember enjoying aiden brody's character the captain and the acting and kong i remember the cgi with kong the facial expressions how i was surprised at how well that was done as well as my recollections of and Billy, what did you remember from Jackson's take on King Kong? I go Kong in general is the the big thing, obviously. I mean, the CGI and using mocap for you know um, uh, for Kong, I thought was you know, they they got you know uh, Andy Circus did yeah. Kong just like he did Smeagol. But it looks like he was also the cook in the movie too. Yep. Right? Was. was he? Yeah. He oh, was he the didn't. Cook. I thought I pointed it out. Oh, that's funny. Yeah, yeah he was, he was the cook. Yeah. Uh, so Andy Circus, I mean, you know, just shows his range as a mocap oh, yeah, act, no, actor. I don't think that's right, but you know what I mean. Just like as he an can actor, do yeah. he can do mocap, motion capture, excuse me, really well. Uh, so yeah, got the movements down. Um, what are our impressions of watching this film? Now I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you well, off. Well, no, I was just gonna say since we brought up Andy Circus, mm-hmm. um, can never say his name right. Um, there was the huge debate: should he have gotten an Academy Award for Gollum? Yes. For and, Gollum? Yeah, and the Academy could not do it because it's CGI. But everyone was, it was this whole debate when the Academies with every year with the Lord of the Rings right. because it is him doing mm-hmm. the acting, the voice, the, but they just could not look past the CGI aspect. That makes that's Hollywood for you. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. Super racist. <laughs> but in your guys' opinion, do you feel like he should have? Been? Yes, because sure. I, yeah. I know MTV gave him award yeah. for being an actor. He's incredible. A, yeah, Best that's supporting. what I thought too. Best but supporting, sure, absolutely. Yeah, it was a huge controversy. Oh yeah, people are just calling out the Academy for not honoring it, mm-hmm. and they would not honor the Lord of the Rings movies until the Return of the King was out. They finally honored it. I think. As the best film, did it win best film? Yeah, I think it won best film. Yeah, yep. they wouldn't do anything until the last film to actually give it its credit. Yeah. So, but sorry, a little tangent. But <laughs> no, no, I was just no. kind of curious if you guys thought he. I mean, even with Kong, you can see his ability to betray emotions through. through oh yeah, the, you know, for so. sure. No. Well, for me, Kong Kong was an up and down film for me. But one of the ups was definitely Andy Serkis as King Kong. The way he like humanized the monster, I thought was just phenomenal. And the bonding between King Kong and Naomi Watts was awesome. And I think mm-hmm. uh, Phoenix, I'll speak for you here, but we were both incredibly charmed by Naomi Watts. Uh, yeah, again, watching it again, I was charmed by her. She, her innocence and. You know, they the colors that they dressed her in, her hair, they made her the light. And um, I mean, she very much embodied the 1920s starlet. She had the look just down, but she had this like innocent, uh, 
inner character that was just really interesting and i thought really well done but the scenes with her and kong it's just incredible for her because she has to act against a green screen and she had to do the jump ups and then the fall downs mm-hmm. and well like imagine the scene where like he flicks her yeah and like having to do that without like having a real the... prompt like that's uh fascinating to think about how they pulled that off from a technical standpoint so i I think that was incredibly done because that's what stands out still watching it now is just her ability to betray those scenes with him. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's just his also Kong because you see how a gorilla would re- interact with a toy or a human being, you know, like mm-hmm. when he's shaking her because he wants her to stop screaming. You know, that's what a gorilla... You haven't seen our children do that. <laughs> yeah. I, that's what a gorilla would do is... Did you just call our children gorillas, I honey? I do not. You twin words only one. But <laughs> the you young know. one is definitely not akin to a wild animal <laughs> <I> right <know. laughs> now. Running around screaming and being frustrated yes. at everything. But no, I think it was well put together mm-hmm. in that sense. And so it made me enjoy the film in those aspects. But. And Billy, to put some words in your mouth now, please. I think when you originally <laughs> watched the film, one of the things that stood out to you was the CGI fight with the T-Rexes. Now, coming back and rewatching the film for this show, did it still have the same magic for you, or were you a little let down by rewatching King Kong? In general, with the whole movie, uh, and we'll we'll get to the weaknesses and and, and whatnot. Um, but it was it was fine. It was fine. I thought they stretched it out way too long. It's like a three plus hour long movie. Um, the CGI was great. The fight scenes on Skull Island with the T-Rexes were really cool. And watching, we watched some of the extras on this film as well. Like, learning about the coordination of that. Like, they wanted to pay homage because I hadn't watched the original King Kong. I didn't yeah. know that he fought freaking dinosaurs. He did, yeah. and So <laughs> they had dinosaurs in the film as that homage. And, like, the coordination that went into this crazy scene where King Kong's fighting three T-Rexes and they're like falling down a ravine and getting caught by vines and still yep. fighting and trying to catch Naomi Watts. And it was just, again, a, like a technical masterpiece. I thought that mm-hmm. scene was incredible. Yep. Um, yeah. The, again, it, we, we'll bring it back to Lord of the Rings. Tolkien's good at fight scenes. Yeah. CGI fight scenes, practical fight scenes. He's, he's good at keeping you interested. Uh, for me, Skull Island, the entire scene... The entire course of everything on Skull Island in this movie literally could have been its own movie. It was. It took like, a very long you time. Know I mean? It was a very long time to get there. It was a very long time on the island and then a very short period of time in New York when they got back with Kong. So for me, Jackson, he does a good job at recreating a movie from the 30s as best as you can. You know what I mean? It's a... I don't even know how long the original is. You know yeah, what I, mean? I don't so, know either. Yeah. Did he do a good job out of it? Sure, absolutely. Did he stretch it out too long because he's Peter Jackson? <laughs> yes. So, you know, I, I have my ups and downs about it. One of the things that surprised me about Peter Jackson's King Kong was how much the first half of the film, all that time on Skull Island, it was a straight up horror film. Like, I was very surprised. Like, they just fought monstrosity after monstrosity and all these horrible things and all these people are dying. It's like, oh, okay, this dude really likes doing horror. I was very surprised. I I thought that King Kong would deal more with the big bad, with Kong. And right. I was surprised mm-hmm. that it was all this other stuff mm-hmm. from dinosaurs to bugs to God knows what else was on Skull Island. No, I agree that I guess one of the weaknesses is that he did... 
I think push the envelope on a lot of scenes that probably aren't in the original, um, like the bugs. Yeah. He, he threw that in for some reason. Um, the dinosaur. He probably had a great idea for some creepy bug effects. Yeah. And I mean, they look cool. They do. But I mean, I guess with the dinosaurs chasing, I mean, that could have been shortened. They didn't have to do it as long as they did. That was right. a, probably a 3D scene. That's the thing. Watching the film, it's like, ah, oh, this is the height of 3D. I wonder if you pushed them. I never thought them. about that. Oh, Did yeah. it come out in 3D? Mm-hmm. Um, that makes a lot more sense. Yeah. Okay. All right. So I feel like maybe he, the driver for him was the 3D aspect. So that's why he extended a lot of stuff. So he yep. could do the 3D aspect. So, which is unfortunate because I agree with you guys. It's It could have been a lot shorter and it could have been more concise in a lot of those scenes. Yeah. And, but... I guess again. Imagine the cool effects that didn't make it into the final film, the things that had to hit the cutting room floor because the film was oh, he, already. It's Peter so Jackson, long. I guarantee yeah. you he has probably twenty five hours of footage. Yeah, and, probably so. And shorten it to three plus hours. Yeah. Uh, but, well oh, I'm sorry. No, I was just gonna say again, you know Skull Island it was interesting with the people. I mean, I can't I'm not watching the original, I don't know if there was the tribe there on the well, It's been a very long time since I've watched okay, the original. Yeah, I just, so I, you know, it, it's hard to remember. But I mean she was being sacrificed to Kong. Yeah, so there so was a, some an indigenous group people there. on this island, yes. And apparently they were at But I'm gonna have to bleep myself a lot. I'm, you are. Yeah. That copy getting to you? I don't know. Maybe. I mean, it's the Hobbit film. I'm all fired up <laughs> over so here. so fired up over the he Hobbit. Does get very Let's talk fired. about Martin Freeman for a little while. I, I like Martin Freeman. I love, I think he's, he's a great, great actor. as Bilbo. Yeah. He was great as Watson. I'm just kidding. <laughs> he Let, was great as Watson. Let's, let's talk about Sherlock. <laughs> let's not. Let's focus more on the strengths of this film. Mm-hmm. Feeney, you brought up that they were trying to recreate a movie from the 30s. And I thought Peter Jackson's world building in the beginning of this film was phenomenal. Like you're following Naomi Watts' character as a struggling act- actress. She's doing uh, vaudeville, 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 and like her theater mm-hmm. gets closed. Like you see her and her coworkers going to like a soup kitchen, and like you see her looking longingly in the window at these rich people eating spaghetti, and it's just. I thought they did such a masterful job of creating the world of 1920s New York, and it was a fascinating look. And frankly, I would have been fine if the whole film took place in New York. Yeah, the whole world creation, 1930s, being on the ship, did a good job of betraying how sailing in the ship and stuff. And nerdy tidbit, you know, how they were trying to measure how deep the water is, actually how you do it back then, you know. So there was a lot of nice elements of the world but again he's good at creating worlds and cgi and everything so i would love to see him do a full film in like 1920s new york oh interesting yeah that would be awesome that'd be pretty cool yeah (laughs) yeah i think we all agree on that like he's he's a great world world builder excuse me um in I do appreciate that he he did his absolute best to recreate a movie that was seventy five plus years old. Oh, yeah. You know, what I mean that's that's a tough thing to do, especially with wanting to like keep the genuineness of mm-hmm. a classic like that. And with it being one of his on it, you know, and with being one of his favorite films, it's like if I was tasked with like rebooting Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, right? Yes. Yeah. it's a big responsibility. <laughs> you want to do it? It's bad. You know, you want to put your yeah. own stuff onto it, but you don't want to lose. You lose know, the heart of it. Right. Well, let's talk about some of the weaknesses of this film. You both mentioned that you thought it was maybe too long. Feeney, what did you think of Jack Black's portrayal as the antagonist in this film? Um, 
Because they do something interesting. Like, you don't really realize that he's the antagonist. Because he's not really the antagonist in the beginning. He's just kind of the driving force that gets ev- all the puzzle pieces into the place. And then he kind of takes a turn towards the end of the film. Well, you see it with Smatterings because, you know, he twists the truth. He um, doesn't have money, so he's pretending that he can pay people. He's just, you know, he twists the truth. He's a con man. Con man, thank mm-hmm. you. Yeah, you know, and... But yeah, you see towards the end it gets he gets more twisted and darker and stuff. But I, Jack Black, I know he tried his best, but I just didn't feel it as much as I felt like I should have. His turn to the darkness as deeply. So I think they picked the wrong actor for yeah. that. Jack Black's a great actor. Don't get me wrong, but I think he's all right. Great is a strong word for <laughs> well, Jack Black's you know, acting chops. He's, he's great in comedy. He 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 holds his own when it's you know like he has a great zinger with Adrian Brody. Like Adrian Brody is trying to get off this boat and they're they're pulling away from right. the dock and like he has he's supposed to be at a play practice at a theater and uh, he doesn't jump off the boat to because he'd land in the water and like so he's trapped on this voyage and Jack Black's like. If you really love the theater, you would have jumped. You would have jumped. Yeah, I I enjoy Jack Black in films and stuff, and it was interesting watching King Kong again. I was paying attention to the actors acting to someone talking, mm-hmm. and Jack Black. If you ever pay attention to him, he's still doing a lot of motions with his face and acting. He's mm-hmm. not standing there like right. some actors will while someone's talking. He, um, you can see him reacting facially even though he's not supposed to be acting at that point so yeah. he continues even though but wasn't there an extra where like he was wiggling his butt during a scene and everyone was giving him grief about it there's something about his butt <laughs> i can't remember yeah i think so yeah he was, he was doing the camera reel the old camera thing and i think he was wiggling his butt too much or something <laughs> peter is telling him to stop i think or something that's funny but no, I agree with Billy. I think they could have chosen someone a little bit better yeah. for the role. I don't, you Again, know, nothing against Jack Black. No, I just, just for this role, somebody else could have done it. Yeah, I don't particularly like Jack Black. I loved him in Tropic Thunder, but I think that's the only film where I really enjoyed him. Uh, no, you liked him in The Holiday. Oh yeah, he was good in The Holiday. He was yeah. good in The Holiday. Yeah, yep. absolutely. So, I mean, there's. It's, films here and there he's good at i mean high they fidelity. Had kevin smith do it high fidelity was one of his i, yeah. I loved his character in high fidelity, fidelity he was but... hilarious in that yeah he was fine i mean yeah. i kind of equate that same character House to of school rock. of rock school of rock House yeah of rock. <laughs> it's school of rock. Yeah. <laughs> yeah i don't really like zany jack black <clears throat> mm-hmm. tenacious d yeah the music's funny it's, he's got some very clever lyrics mm-hmm. with karate will kick your from here to Tiananmen square that's pretty solid yeah yeah i mean there's actors out there that if you can con- tone them down or I don't want to say control them, sometimes they can become good actors. But mm-hmm. again, if you let an actor like, say, Jack Black, he can get into his zany self. And sometimes with maybe King Kong, you don't want the zany Jack Black. Right. You want a different version. Mm-hmm. So, but Well, other thoughts on the strength or, strengths or weaknesses of King Kong, or should we move on to our final thoughts? Um, I think one... He did a good job capturing the original and the ending scene, being up on the Empire State Building, trying yep. to protect her. Yep. I mean, talking to Brian last night, he says the original, they, the original had King Kong more as a brute and more, 
I don't, just know, monstrous? Like more monstrous, monster. yeah. Right. And the woman didn't want anything to do with him. Um, but in this film, he, he humanized King Kong and had him trying to protect her and trying to keep her safe from the airplanes because he didn't know what they were. So, And it was sad when <clears throat> Kong died. Like it, yeah. was, it had a real emotional punch to it. It's interesting that Jackson was able to make us empathize with the monster yeah mm-hmm. and i guess that's the biggest strength coming from the film is his ability to make us f- feel for kong in the end mm-hmm. even though he's supposed to be viewed as a monster so but yeah it was a pretty good film i enjoyed it i would have preferred someone else in black's role but other than that um i mostly enjoyed the film yeah i mean overall it's enjoyable but whether I'll watch again, who knows? I mean, yeah, I don't think I'll watch it again. I think it was fine watching it for a second time and just remembering what happened. They could also probably tone down on the amount of time that they had Naomi Watts and Kong just stare at each other. <laughs> There's a little too much of that and a little too long of that. I don't know what it was, <laughs> but I was just like, what is happening? And like, yeah. there's nothing, there's, nobody's talking. There's just. Or when she's like walking down the street. Also, you girls can run in heels in anything, by the way. I just any scenario, you're in heels and your hair is perfect. <laughs> well, everyone has a gripe about uh, films with women running in heels. And actually, the actress from Jurassic Park, um, mm-hmm. Bryce Howard, mm-hmm. yep. she specifically said she had to be in heels because that's what her character would be in. And everyone says she wouldn't be running in heels. Why is she wearing? She said she would have been in heels that day. So she had to be in heels for running in the scene. I just saw another heel run. Yeah. I was like, oh, is that a trope that they're doing in movies these days? Because uh, I, you got to put the attractive woman in uh, heels. I remember wearing heels a lot when I first worked at the clinic. And I had to run someplace. And I ran in heels. Yeah, your feet get a little sore. But actually, I ran pretty fast in heels one time. I was just like, I don't know, something about the way the feet hit the ground. I don't know. But yeah, it's just... I was fascinated by it. It's like, oh, I can run pretty good in these. But I guess it depends on how high the heel is, too. You know? Yeah. So. um. Bryce Howard played uh, Gwen Stacy in the second, no, third Spider-Man film. That's right. She was in that, wasn't she? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So. Yeah. Work Spider-Man in. Perfect. Got her, too. (laughs) Ron Howard. Mm -hmm. In case anybody didn't know that. Yes. We are going to step away for just a moment and welcome in friend of the show, Dr. Kelsey Camille. And now we're excited to welcome back friend of the show, Dr. Kelsey Camille from Premier Health in Coon Rapids. Dr. Camille, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me in, Tom. Today we're going to talk about supplements. Can you give us some guidance on some supplements that would be beneficial for gamers, what we should take and how we should administer it? So there's a lot of different supplements out there and... Well, a thorough evaluation can give you um, the most specific recommendations, um, some general guidelines on supplements that that tend to be um, beneficial for the average person. Um, They're going to be fish oils, uh, vitamin D3, and magnesium. When it comes to fish oils, you want to look at making sure that you're getting higher amounts of the omega-3 versus the omega-6 fatty acid, and that's going to be helpful for your inflammation. Um, You can make sure that you're taking those in a capsule form, a tablet form, anything like that. Um, When it comes to vitamin D, you want to make sure that you're getting it into the form of a vitamin D3. Those can be done in a capsule as well. And that's going to be very helpful for keeping you healthy, keeping your energy up. And especially when we're playing our games, we're not spending as much time outside. So it's going to be assistance um, for all of us Minnesota gamers, um, not really getting our sunlight. 
And then with the magnesium, it's going to help for any muscle spasm, any muscle soreness. Um, and the most ideal way to um, consume our magnesium is actually in the form of a lotion um, on our skin because that's where we actually get our maximal absorption. Terrific. You mentioned that it's a very individual, supplements are a very individual topic. So we have a couple of points of advice for people. They can check out your website certainly at premierhealthmn.com. That's premierhealthmn.com for more resources or they can schedule a consultation with you. Also through the website at premierhealthmn.com. That sounds perfect. Well, thank you so much for stopping by Dr. Camille. Thank you. After King Kong, Peter Jackson did an adaptation of the best-selling novel, The Lovely Bones, in 2009. Three horrible cash grabs I won't mention my name again from 2012 to 2014 before releasing a pair of documentaries. We'll break down They Shall Not Grow Old, released in 2018 in a moment, but I wanted to take some time to talk about his most recent project. Phoenix, you grew up with the Beatles. Your dad is, I would say, obsessed with them. Has your family watched The Beatles Get Back, which released last year? Uh, my dad started watching it, and he's had to stop it because it's just too much. Uh, hard die, hard fan, someone who's into music, who likes the process of making music, would enjoy the film, uh, especially the first two episodes of them in the studio, just trying to rift on stuff, talk about stuff, just, you know, it... It's a slog, he says, because you're just sitting there watching. You're watching them sit and just play a few notes here, walk away, talk to someone. It's just very mundane. Welcome to what it's exactly like being yeah, in a musician in a, yeah. in a recording studio. So, it's boring. I bet. Yeah. And so he says that for someone that wants to see that process or knows that process would enjoy watching the Beatles do their thing. He's going to try to jump ahead to the third episode, which would talk about show them actually doing the actual songs in studio, but also what happened. Why did Harrison, George Harrison not want to do the concert because they were supposed to do a grand concert. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if it was Albert Hall or whatever, but it was supposed to be this huge and he did not want to do it. He was pulling out. So that's how the rooftop concert happened was because of that. So he's intrigued to see what was the cause of all this, but I do know that a lot of people say this documentary um, humanizes Yoko Ono a little bit better because people always say she was the she one broke that up the Beatles broke up the Beatles. Where it's in this documentary, you actually see her talking to George Harrison and encouraging him to do his own songs, and so I think people are getting a better picture about who she was with the Beatles with this documentary. So, Bernie Ladies wrote a song called "Be My Yoko Ono." That's right, they did, didn't they? <laughs> it was on their debut album, Gordon. Yeah. So, no, I he's enjoying it, but I, for me, I don't know if I'd watch it, you know, because I don't know. I enjoy their music, but I don't know if I really need to see the process. But. If somebody wants to enjoy Beatles music in a film format, what would you recommend? Oh, yeah, Across the Universe. Across the Universe. Yeah. It's really good. Beautiful, uh, beautifully yeah. well done. I love the movie. I finally shared it with him, and yeah, no, it's... A beautiful film with their music. Mm -hmm. So I remember watching that, and there's there's these really trippy scenes, and I'm like, if this is what psychedelic drugs are like, hard pass, no thank you. <laughs> like, I like reality to be like real. Like it it does get a little psychedelic with their songs, because yeah, because you were surprised by the one song that you weren't familiar with. Um, I, I, I am, am the walrus, cuckoo, cuckoo. I'm like, this is the freaking Beatles. Like this is like yeah. nonsense. <laughs> 
You like their older stuff, I know. I do like their older stuff. Uh, that's enough Beatles talk for right now. Let's come back to They Shall Not Grow Old, a World War One documentary. I haven't watched many documentaries of any form or format, but we did watch this one for the show. The documentary shares a soldier's impressions of fighting in World War One. It combines archived footage... Uh, archived war video footage with BBC interviews for the audio. There's no narrator. It's just all of this uh, soldier audio spliced together to tell the story from beginning to end. I thought we'd start by talking about just our familiarity with documentaries. I watch next to none. Very, very few. Feeney, uh, how many do you watch? Or like, what's your level of affinity for documentaries? Uh, lately, since we've been together, it's not been as much, but when I lived with my parents i used to consume a lot more because they would watch a lot um with ken burns stuff back when he was really starting to release stuff but uh, american experience you know on pbs you know pbs had a lot of different um documentaries battlefield britain is one of my favorites it's a father-son team that talk about all the different battles in britain it's very fun to watch them go through all that uh, history and stuff so and mr perot yes <laughs> <laughs> i uh i grew up on documentaries my father and mom love love them um pbs yeah. absolutely mm -hmm. national geographic anything like that uh and war documentaries too uh my dad was big into world war ii as far as just the history of oh, it yeah. i just grew up on world war ii and yeah, so I've been and still watch documentaries to this day. I watched documentary on the documentary "They Shall Not Grow Old." Oh, really? Interesting. Yep, that would I did. Be fascinating. Well, it was just like the making of, but it was like a yeah, documentary of a documentary. I was just laughing to myself <laughs> watching Peter Jackson talk about his own documentary. Yeah. I was like, oh, this is interesting. <laughs> well, in our show prep, I learned that we each have an affinity for World War II in particular. Yep, I have almost no awareness of World War One. I. I know next to nothing about it. So that. It was interesting for me to come into this documentary with a completely clean slate. What made this particular documentary, They Shall Not Grow Old, stand out? Billy, we'll start with you from yeah. your whole history of documentaries. What yes. is unique about this one? Well, this one, unique in the fact that I believe that World War II and color came out before this. So the whole colorization of black and white film mm -hmm. is not something that's new by any chance. But what Jackson did was he actually... He, he condensed the frame rate of yeah. the old, the hundred-year-old footage that these cameramen back in the trenches had, which was like 17 frames per second. And they like rigorously went through each scene and moved it to 24 frames per second. So it would be lifelike when you're watching Slower. these people. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden you get this hundred-year-old footage of, you know, like the old Babe Ruth days. You know, everybody's moving too fast, <laughs> eh? You know, like... And then it's slowed to like real life, that 24 frames per second that everybody's used to seeing in film and movies and TV and stuff. And it just jumps out at you as just real. I don't know what it is. Like it's everybody's, everybody's, you know, you, you knew these soldiers were off fighting, but then they become like lifelike. Not, I, I, I'm trying to describe it. It becomes real all of a sudden. Like, you get it. Like, you can feel their emotions. And that was fantastic. And then he colorized everything. And Jackson went to as far as to flying to France, taking pictures of the old places where everybody was so he could get the perfect color of the grass. Hmm. Oh, so he really did a good job at making sure what he was 
um, recreating and um, re-editing and colorizing was perfect as to what they could get. Um, well, from a technical standpoint, I respect what happened here. And yes. you like this documentary quite a bit. I do. Phoenix and I are on the other side of the scale. <laughs> Both of us had some major issues. And for me, it was all visual. Like, I... I thought that it was a very interesting way to present it with the clipped audio. Yep. But for me, the color was off. Like uh, specifically an issue that Phoenix and I had was the eyes when they did the colorizing. Like uh, I, uh, there were a I, lot of like blank zombie eyes and it was disconcerting. I will. I will. If you care to do it, there's a half an hour long YouTube video. I'll send you a link to, and it's just the making of, oh, yeah. and you'll understand why it looks very uncanny Valley at times. I, I figure it's slowing down the frame Correct. and trying to get it. It's not exact science. So you yeah. have, so 100-year-old film, as yeah. we all know, degrades. Oh, you know yeah. what I mean? So they're, what they were doing is they were taking like saturated film and too dark film and like bringing it. Yeah. Because even when it wasn't colorized, the eyes still looked weird. Because, you know, you're, you're messing with shades sure. of lighting. You're messing with different variants of contrast. And so... Yes, it did look very weird. Like when they would stare at you yes. and the eyes were not quite right. You know what I mean? Or sometimes there'd be a little like ripple across someone's face. Yeah. And like, it had like a weird shade fading effect between yeah. like some stuff. Moving. And that's just because of the colorization because they're 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 splicing together. Like, you know, because you, you're, you're working with the World War One um, historical society over in Britain there. And they have so many different shots and so many different like film reels where some are degraded in this way and some mm -hmm. are not. So they're splicing these things together. And so, yeah, that's where you get that weird effect. They just like did the best that they could with what they had, but I can absolutely understand why that's extremely off putting. Cause it's like, you know, these guys are real, but man alive, does that just look freaky at times? Yeah. yeah it was hard for me. Cause all of a sudden when it shifted to color and slowed down, I was like, okay is this actors it was hard for me to adjust right away because it's like i felt like he was having people actually do it which gives credit to him for his ability to do that shift oh, it's beautiful and though 25 minutes in and they go <clears throat> 16 by 9 and yeah. then they fit oh my god so it credit to him because i thought it was actors or something at first but then as it went on i saw the you know the ghost like and the blurriness and stuff and it was i, I attain it to what it must have I, I attain it to that feeling of watching the wizard of oz when it goes to color oh uh, yeah just the way it's done mm -hmm. i thought he did that really well and where it's just like they get to the front lines and then boom and then everything comes out and, it's and everything color. pops and yeah. now we're going to show you what it really it was, was like, like to yeah. be there in the trenches in france yeah. um yeah. Sorry, you were going on. I no, think. no, that's a good comparison as far as using uh, Wizard of Oz because I didn't. That's a good comparison. Yeah, I mean, it it was hard for me because it just, for my eye, it was just a lot of stuff that would grab my attention versus then listening to them uh -huh. at times. So it took away a little bit for me, and so I really had a hard time with it. So is it because it didn't have a narrative? It kind of that took was... you guys out of the documentary? Yeah, I was just going to bring that up with you. Was, most documentaries are narrated in some form, right. correct? Yep. I definitely missed having one person like pull us through the entire three lines. I thought it was an interesting approach to use just these spliced uh, interviews, and I saw a comment that Peter Jackson said, he doesn't even know if the film is accurate, but this is the real soldiers like 
giving their impressions of it. Correct. He he purposely did that. He didn't mm-hmm. want it to be narrated. He wanted it to be told by the people that were actually there. I guess the thing that I would have liked is to, if he could have flashed maybe some years or something, or what a pivotal point was at this point of the war that they were at, mm-hmm. you know, to just get it. I know a little bit about World War One, and it's a very fascinating war. So for my intr- uh, thirst to learn more about history, it would have been a little bit interesting for me to have at least some sort of every once in a while a pinpoint, well, this right. at this you point liked, is, you know. I think this is more, uh, pardon me, I'm talking, sorry, yeah. you would have liked a little bit more of a lecture format. And I generally like lecture, but I know what he was trying to do with the stories, and I really appreciate him having more of the voice of the soldier because... I enjoyed hearing their voices and hearing their perspective, and it was fascinating to hear how much from them talking about how old they were and going in, because you don't necessarily get that from a lecture. You can have someone tell you, but it was really fascinating to hear them actually talk about it, you know? Yeah, being told to go outside, have a birthday, and come back. Like, the recruiters didn't care about their age. They just wanted the bodies. I thought that was really interesting, too. I thought that... So I enjoyed he had the voices of the soldiers themselves, and it did tell a nice story, but it just... In ways, it would have been nice to be like, oh, them getting ready for that um, siege, you know? It would have been nice. Like the final push. It would have been nice to know around what time that was, you know, for me. Mm-hmm. at least so but well billy you watch a lot of documentaries did you enjoy not having a narrator was it a fresh and interesting way to tell the story or did you miss having like that lecturer presence i mean i i absolutely understand where you guys are coming from on that it's nice to get a little bit of information while you're watching something i thought the way that he did it i think he does he, he wasn't going for an educational type sure. of documentary he was just more going for like a depictive type of documentary from the is that still a documentary at that point like, I guess I don't know what the lines is. To me, a documentary is uh, an, educational an, an educational tool. Right, you'll learn right. something. You'll pick something out of it. That's yeah. my uneducated impression of you know, a that's documentary. A really, that's a really good point. I'd, I'd be curious to Google that and see what other opinions are, if it's a movie or if it's a... Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Um, Here's another random question to lob at you. Please. Why do you think he made a documentary as opposed to making like a World War One film? It'd be interesting to see what his effects would look like in a yeah, World he, War One setting. Is, he is like bonkers nuts about World War One. He has like one of the bigger World War One like memorabilia collections, like the the big guns that they used mm, really? in that movie for the sound effect for the big guns, the howitzers. I can't remember what they're called. I'm sorry. Or the, um, like the artillery. Yeah, the big artillery yeah. guns. Yes, the actual sounds that you hear in this doc, and we'll just refer to it as a documentary yeah. until we hear otherwise. <laughs> um, he's like, we couldn't find, like, we didn't want to just get like B-roll footage audio of like these. Mm-hmm. So he's like, so you know, I went into my warehouse and pulled out two of these things from <laughs> World War One, and then like went to a bomb range with a bunch of British soldiers really? and actually fired them off. Wow. I'm glad you brought that up because that's something I forgot. I mentioned that I thought this film was a technical masterpiece when we were talking about the colorization. Yeah. When they were recording this footage back in 
the early 1900s like there was no audio like Correct. all of the audio in this film had to be superimposed on and i yep. thought as much as i struggled with the visuals and like the faces the audio was awesome like it sounded mm-hmm. phenomenal mm-hmm. and it sounded like you were right there so like that they, just uh, kudos for and again I, I, i'll keep bringing it up i will send you the link if you have a half an hour just watch the making of this documentary okay. you'll appreciate it a little bit more because they put like seven microphones in the field where they were shooting off these shells so that actual whistle from the shell flying through the air and hitting the ground really? that's actually them firing it off and wow and how many people outside of the military have ever heard that noise before that's, oh that's wild yeah. what a terrifying sound and they yeah. said you know the shell that kills you you don't hear it coming yeah, you know it's what I mean? faster so, than the speed of sound yep yeah. absolutely um yes i agree with you wholeheartedly the audio was fantastic and they they did the practical audio as well um they you know from having a guy in a studio, like actually in boots, walking through mud, oh, okay. um, you know, shovels as they were shoveling. So, and then just putting some voice actors to the mouth reading, like the speech that I don't know if you remember it, the speech that like the captain is giving that line of guys. Yeah, yeah. They grabbed speak speech pathologists and lip readers from all across England oh, and really? everywhere brought him into the studio and all the times that you see people talking and they put voices to it Mm -hmm. that's from lip readers saying oh he's saying this he's saying this and that scene with that captain we'll go with captain because i don't know the rank of the british military um back in world war one but (laughs) peter jackson's like i really want to know what that what he's saying because you can see little flashes of his mouth and he's like and in other documentaries they use that footage too because it's very iconic Mm -hmm. he's like gosh what are they saying and so Peter Jackson went to like the World War One archives, and they they're like, okay, well they're from that battalion, and they're from that portion of the. Da, 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 da. They like just went down this list of, and they found the actual piece of paper that that captain is reading off of really? in that speech, and brought in all of these vocal teachers and these lip readers, and they're like, does this match up that guy's voice and at uh, that guy's lips? And they're like, yeah, that's totally the speech. And so they found the actual like pep talk that this captain is giving the soldiers. That is fascinating because I truly didn't enjoy this film that much. I didn't hate it. I didn't loathe it. That's why I was really excited to talk to you guys about this. I was talking with Phoenix yesterday at the party and And I was like, like, yeah, we just weren't that into it. I'm like, oh, I can't wait to talk about it because I'll tell you why it is cool. It it is very fascinating and learning more about the background and all the stuff that Peter Jackson did to make this film, like it makes me appreciate it more. I appreciate it very much. I still just didn't like it very much just when it was going into my eyes and my brain. Mm -hmm. I appreciate it. And it shows, um, it's fun to learn a little bit more about it and it'll be fun to watch the YouTube. Um, but it gives you insight into Peter Jackson, his love for something, you know, his love for Tolkien, what he did Mm -hmm. and his love for changed key characters and ruined it. (laughs) Uh, for um, <laughs> King Kong, and you know, you know, and, he puts himself into, into it. Like he really gives. It he his goes all. over and aboard, yeah. you know, more than he needs to. But yep. it can create something that is beautiful, and so it's fascinating to learn what he did and how much he dug into mm-hmm. to 
make this film come together. Yeah. And it makes me wonder why he did The Lovely Bones, which is The Lovely Bones was a popular novel in around the early 2000s, and he did a film adaptation in like 2018. And I remember he said it was a nice break from his fantasy epics. But like, does he have like some strong love, love for, for that it. book? It seems like he chases so many passion projects yeah. and turns them into this big things. Or was that just was that the right by project? Just directed because that wasn't one of its written ones. I don't. Know. I don't know if he wrote the adaptation or not. Yeah, that I don't. Alice know. Siebold wrote the novel. Okay. Weird that I know that. <laughs> All the random stuff that I forget in our every life. <laughs> Who wrote the Lovely Bones? Alice Siebold. Well, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> the more you know. <laughs> what elements? What Peter Jackson elements are in this documentary that we haven't already covered? What makes it stand out as a Peter Jackson thing? We've talked about his effects um, constantly throughout this show, and that's kind of the hallmark of Peter Jackson. Was there anything else that? struck you as a peter jackson moment and they shall not grow old yeah um all the battle scenes that you're seeing of like shells exploding on in this documentary they never recreate they never captured that in the actual world we world. were wondering the, about that because well you know as a so as a as a cameraman for you know back then it was a giant camera on a tripod that you would have to spin by yourself so everything you see in the trenches and everything else but no one would ever, and no one would ever make a soldier pick that up, spin it around, throw it up on top of a trench, and start yes. filming. <laughs> so they actually, the you know, they would get far away shots. Mm-hmm. Excuse me, they would get far away shots of like that, and you'd see soldiers running around and stuff like that. But actual shell explosion stuff—that's all Peter Jackson. He added all of that just what to give it dramatization. What about the mining scenes? Was that him? I don't know. He didn't mention it. I'd, I'd have to go back and check again. Okay. Um, uh, but yeah, so a lot of that stuff that you see, like the the wide pan shots of the uh, no man's land and stuff like that, that it was filmed from some of the soldiers. And then you had actually Peter Jackson going out there and doing a couple of things just to kind of get some B roll footage. I One- guess, um, sorry. Um, I guess maybe you can clarify cause it was hard to understand them a little bit, but the Germans, they were mining to create craters for the, their soldiers to get into, or what was the mining part? I Again, you'll have to forgive me. I, I'm yeah, not familiar not too either. much with World War One. The mines that they were using, yes, they would do to help with the trenches that they were building and so stuff it was to build and, more trenches. and whatnot. Okay. Um, so, yeah, and then you hear them talking about how they would use the actual shell craters that were created when the artillery would go off to jump in and hide in and stuff like that. Okay. So, you know, you know, trench warfare is yeah, it was absolutely horrendous and crazy i I remember them in the film talking about the artillery the bombs and different ones but some of them talked about how the mining sound was just that was hard to hear Mm -hmm. because it kind of was yeah that's like earth rumbling sounds and stuff yeah i wonder did the british not use a mining technique or just shovels for their trenches as far as i know it was shovels okay so you know um okay that's that's what i'm familiar with again i'm that's that's not my strong point. World War One. Fascinating thing. Sorry, um, was to learn about the English with the tanks, you know, mm-hmm. and that was fascinating to learn some pieces like the tanks and coming in from the Britons. They're keeping it hidden. So yeah. it was fun to see. So you learn some new things like that. And yeah. Also, the train. I absolutely loved how they had the little train the little and train. the tracks that yep. they were laying out. And then they had, to, they had to have it powered by uh, diesel because the steam was giving, or the coal was giving up too much steam, steam and giving yeah. away their position. Yeah. One other thing you thought was cute, Phoenix, was how they were obsessed with making tea and all the innovative well, it's ways just they... it's so British. It's just, it's so I British. love how 
that for their life to continue, they had to make tea. And it's just so fascinating to hear the different ways they tried to make tea. And it was just fantastic because, mm-hmm. you know, the British love their tea. They can't, you know. Yeah. And so it's just it was very fun to hear about mm-hmm. them using the water off the artillery. Was it to heat it or were they getting water off the artillery? They were heating the water on the heating artillery, the, like on the I barrels because yeah. they were getting so hot. So I just that was really fun to hear yeah. them talk about that. Yeah. And and the last fascinating thing I found from the documentary was someone can tell you it, but hearing the soldiers talk about it was coming home. That ending with them coming home yeah. is I'm, heartbreaking. I'm, thank to you for the, bringing that back up. I'm coming you know, full circle here, guys. <laughs> you know, they come home. You hear them at the beginning desperate to sign up and go yep and people calling them cowards and giving them a white feather if they're still around and stuff and then turn around they come home and no one wants to take care of them no one wants to talk to them they can't get a job they can't you know and it's just it's amazing how out of touch england was to the war Mm -hmm. the first war Fun uh, side anecdote, that is loosely the premise of my favorite video game ever, Final Fantasy Tactics. Oh, really? Yeah, there is a, there's a war, soldiers come back, they can't get jobs, they can't live, so they turn to become bandits, basically, uh-huh. and it creates all the civil unrest, and the, there's this huge class upheaval, and uh, it's a very s- parallel story. Oh, really? Um, and then, it's interesting, and then you shift to World War Two, and they finally find out how devastating war is the english do because they get bombed in london and stuff and so it's interesting between the two the people did not understand what those soldiers dealt with with world war one but then they finally found out Mm -hmm. in world war two and so but it was just fascinating to hear them talk about how they just could not and parents the way they were with to their kids when they Mm -hmm. came home it's just it was yep nobody wanted to hire him no everybody gave a crap about the soldiers when they were going into war and then when they came back yeah i mean everybody was everybody was so poverty stricken and unemployment was huge because you had this massive wave of of boys boys leaving for four years Mm -hmm. for this war and then coming back there's no jobs so then they were just kind of you know i don't i don't know the aftermath of that but i mean then you go you know yeah. it's 1918 when the war ends and then you've got 26 years 15 plus more years <laughs> until world war ii starts yeah. you know what i mean so yeah you know. and the other fascinating thing with world war one is and they kind of bring it out a little bit with the soldiers talking about it um them being amongst german prisoners you know it seems like world war one you know they had no idea they you know they seemed to still want to get along they were nice to each other and stuff you know the germans were it didn't seem like there was a lot of hatred which i know world war ii brings out more of the hatred if you talk to people but you know it almost seems like you know there's the famous story of the battalion the christmas story where mm-hmm. they were playing they'd go out in the middle of night go in the middle of no man's land and play Silent night. Uh, Silent night. Silent night. Thank you. Um, football, and you know Hitler was part of the battalion, but he never would join them. He just did not want to do it. But um, and we know what happened to that guy. Yeah. So, <laughs> but, yeah, he got trapped in that theater that burned down. Glorious. <laughs> nice. But you know, it's it's a great documentary to 
be able to hear these voices, hear them talk about different aspect of their life because again, I like a narration, but sometimes you can lose that with a narration to hear actually someone talk about it. Yep. And I, Peter Jackson put in close up footage of lice. That was a okay. eye opening experience for us. <laughs> yeah, that was uh, yeah. well it really just shows you like the absolute like yes. destitute and disgustingness that these people that these soldiers lived in was and uh, it's yeah. true. That's where trench cut trench foot came from you know oh, like yeah. that that's gangrene and losing limbs just from the poor conditions of yeah there's some and mud and hor- water or horrific images of like gangrene feet uh one image that stuck with me was there was a shot of the barbed wire in no man's land and like it was just the sea of barbed wire like as far as i it's could terrifying. tell it was, like the thought of having to cross that to like yeah. go kill yeah. your enemy while they're shooting at you yeah. like Oh, that, it's uh, terrifying. Yeah. That's that's what they say. The trench warfare was absolutely horrific for everybody. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just, it's a um, I'm trying to think of my thought here, but um, I think he did an incredible job in learning more what he did mm-hmm. to honor this piece of work. I had a thought after I was done watching it that he it would have been better as a immersive exhibit like Van Gogh's immersive exhibit. Oh, if you've like seen a, that. going to an actual museum kind of a thing? Well, with Van Gogh, what they did, each room is just um, oh, is that one that? painting and That's you're right. walking yes. in I it. And I, was uh, yeah, thinking, yeah. I haven't seen like, that. I was thinking he could have done something like that where mm. he has the um, film playing with the people talking and you go to each room to immerse yourself That'd in it really versus cool. you know the documentary i thought that might be a better choice of this oh, imagine having to like walk through a trench that's all like wet and right. smelly yeah that's true oh, man. but i guess part of the weakness for me was you know the ghostiness but he repeated a lot of images which after a while that got a little bit like okay we've seen this one or mm-hmm. a little too much on one image but i know there's probably only so much footage he could use but no he actually had like 120 hours plus of footage and oh, really? dropped it down to 60 hours and then dropped it down <laughs> oh, okay. to what it was he said there's there was going to be so much more that he wanted to tell oh. but he only wanted to focus on just this portion of okay. these soldiers in the trenches and stuff he had okay. stuff from like the air force oh yeah and, or the royal battalion and everything else so he he's got a whole bunch more <laughs> okay. stuff you know what i mean but yeah. he, he he just wanted to lay focus on this because okay. most of the audio footage that he had that fit that narrative was, was from these soldiers specifically okay yeah i just it just for my eye just seeing a couple pictures over and over again holding it was just a, yep. a little bit too much for me my attention started to wander sure. a little bit no, so for sure yeah. it's yeah you started looking up the real people from heavenly creatures no that was during <laughs> heavenly creatures i was doing that yeah. not during that <laughs> yeah so no it's his elements that he brings is his love for world war one his love his passion is his yeah. extreme interest in the fact that he's got one of the biggest collections in the world of memorabilia and tanks and everything that's what he brought to it yeah. he knows so much about it so of course you know he's gonna just go bonkers over finding all the right stuff for this and doing it correctly yeah is there anything else that we want to discuss about They Shall Not Grow Old, or should we move on to our closing thoughts, which are award documentary or movie recommendations? I'm good to move on. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think we touched on everything. I mean, it's enjoyable to hear your take and what you've learned from the YouTube, because mm-hmm. it does help me appreciate a little more what he put into the film, you know? Yeah. So. Yep. But. 
Yeah, fascinating technical masterpiece. I I don't know if I'm going to watch it again after watching the YouTube video. <laughs> I probably won't watch it again. Yeah. Yeah. I yeah. if he comes out with more stuff like he did that, maybe. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I'd watch it. Yeah. I'd be interested in seeing like more I'd be interested in seeing more that was new and not right. necessarily yeah. Watch, yeah. rewatching. We have to remember world. too that World War One was more of like on the European side of it things. Was, it didn't yeah. really affect. We sent soldiers, obviously. It was a world war, yes, mm-hmm. but that was like that's Britain's war it at the same gold, time. Yeah. That was so. That's probably a lot. I think it took a lot to get Wilson to enter the war. I can't remember what was the trigger. But... I, I, I don't remember either. Um, I know the submarines were part of World War One too. I know that was yeah. An they issue. had U boats and stuff yeah, like that. Yeah, so, mm-hmm. Well, we'll close our show today with our war documentary and movie recommendations. I will start because I'm the least cultured out of the three of us. <laughs> I really enjoyed both the book and the movie adaptation of Enemy at the Gates. Uh, the book is. It basically follows the action around Stalingrad in World War II. The movie takes one very small aspect of that and follows a couple of characters from the book. But I enjoyed both as like separate things, and I recommend both. Now you two can discuss, and I, I will see you. I love the Battle of Stalingrad. I, I had a great history teacher in college, especially about World War II, and him going through everything, Stalingrad was the pivotal moment that turned the tide for the whole war. Mm-hmm. Because once the Russians pushed the Germans back, they were just like tanks, just pushing them all the way back. And then Stalin said, we're stopping here because Churchill and um, Roosevelt just said, oh, let the Russians and Germans kill each other. And Stalin knew it and said, no. He uh- stopped his line and- I think one of the tactics Stalin used to motivate his troops was he didn't evacuate Stalingrad. So, like, all no. the soldiers there, like, their families were there. So, like, the mm-hmm. stakes were very, very high. There's a Russian film that just came out that's really highly regarded about Stalingrad, which I would like to watch. But um, I'd be super interested in that, too. And so he said, I'm not moving my troops any further. You have to come with the next vice because they had talked about it. And then that's when D-Day came around mm-hmm. because Stalin wouldn't move his troops anymore. They had so at that point everything started to turn. But Stalingrad is a very fascinating because it was room to room, and then it was building to building. Isn't it one of Hitler's like two major military follies was not invading, uh, not crossing the English Channel and invading England, and uh, not essentially doing the same thing with Stalingrad? Well, with the English, he was pissed off that they could not understand what he was trying to do. He's like, you're part of the Aryan race. Why aren't you joining me in this fight against these Russians, the Balts, the Slavics? And, you know, so he was very frustrated. Mm. I know Stalin retreated for a while when, because he thought he had an agreement with Hitler for a little bit, and then Hitler invaded Russia, and Stalin disappeared for a while, so they thought he was kind of not going to come out and help him, but... I can't remember if Hitler made a mistake with Stalingrad. I just can't remember that I, piece. I don't recall that. I'm not sure. But I know, he, I think he had a hubris about Russia was the problem Hitler did. So, but, and so, but the Russian people were very motivated <clears throat> at that point at Stalingrad, I think. So, mm-hmm. but, sorry, tangent, but I just, <clears throat> Hart, he was a fantastic history teacher. He was learned a lot about World War II, took both classes that he had, so... But, um, nice. So you'd recommend Saving Private Ryan? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's just like, Saving Private Ryan's good. 
Um, I don't know what your guys' opinion is about uh, Pearl Harbor. I just, I don't really rate that very high either. The movie? I, yeah, I the did movie. not enjoy it's the a terrible film. movie. Yeah. So, okay. So, um, I mean, I Billy will talk about one of my favorite shows by HBO, but um, yep. I, any Kim Burns documentary, World War II, fantastic. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, there's a British show called Foil's War, which... Ooh, I want to watch that, yeah. I love the show. It's a very gentle show, but it's a murder mystery show. This man who was in World War One tried to become a soldier in World War Two, but they kept denying him because he's a police detective in their town, and they had to keep some police. So you see him... Going, oh, he wants to be in the war, but he has to stay being the mm-hmm. head detective in this town. And but they bring in historical historical stuff about what's happening at that point because they're on the coast, the bottom of Great Britain. So you see some of the aspects. Um, Memphis Bell, I love that film. U five seven one is a great one. I love submarine movies, and I enjoyed that one. It's, but. Um, there's one you were just talking about this morning. Um, I, you said oh, yeah. the name, and I was like, oh, yeah, I've heard of that. Oh, it's um, a John Woo Chinese film, Red Cliff, and it's a two-disc movie. Uh, the whole politics and everything can be probably a little slow for some people, but the battle scenes of Red Cliff in China are fantastic. Okay. I mean, the effects are great. It's yep. Chinese, so you have a lot of... But you see their style of fights, and they have actually... Uh, the boats, sort of naval type fight in this movie too. So it was, it's very fascinating film. Mm-hmm. Uh, Warlords is another Asian film that is fantastic with Jet Li. You hate his character. It's really well done by him. But um, <laughs> and um, I totally forgot about this. I remembered it last night. To end all wars. Have you seen that one? Uh, remind me again. Uh, Keith Sutherland is in it. He is a prisoner in a war camp with, by the Japs. Ooh, it, I don't know. I'm gonna have to look that one up. I, I probably have seen duty it. Heavy duty, yeah. and it's I Kiefer Sutherland is fantastic in the film. Okay, and it's just it's been a long time since I saw it, but I remember it stuck with me. It's one of those films that stick with you because you're dealing with um, prisoner camp issues and yep. stuff. So it's a really you, good film. You know, a Kiefer Sutherland film sticks with me. Which one? The Three Musketeers. <laughs> great movie. Yeah, great movie. Kind of. But, yeah. I haven't seen it in a long time, but I had a major affinity for that film. It's a good film. But also, he's Jack Bauer. Yes, he is Jack Bauer. But right. no, um, it's a good film. And Thin Red Line was another one I really thoroughly mm-hmm. enjoyed. Yep. Um, because you get a different, a lot of different pieces about the war through that film. So. Yeah. Um, and Billy, what are your recommendations for war films or documentaries? Well, uh, like your wife, I'll go with Band of Brothers is probably yes. my all-time favorite. I watch that series probably once a year. Oh, really? All well, the way yeah. through. I've um, never seen it. It's, it's a great film. Uh, show. Yeah, series. ten part series. Mini series, I guess. Mini series. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I think Tom, I bought the book at uh, that big library sale we went to. Oh, really? Yeah, That'd I think be so. Interesting yeah. read. Tom Hanks, Steven Spielberg, mm-hmm. doing. Saving uh, Private Ryan? No, <laughs> which they did, but that's how Tom Hanks got involved in the Band of Brothers. Huh. Um, yep. is Spielberg's love for World War II and Hanks' love for World War II. I say love like it's like, I love war. No, it's no, just the history they, of the history, it. Yeah. Um, it's it's so well done. It's so, it's so f- tragic because you're actually hearing from these people who are being acted by all of these... You know, mm-hmm. these people and you're hearing their stories and it's 
Oh my god. Um, it sounds easy, like a bummer. Easy company, and it's yeah, it's it's they're paratroopers. Mm-hmm. Um, so you learn about the beginning of paratrooping in paratrooping, being a paratrooper yeah. in World War Two and what it was like to go through it. You get, they got like an extra 50 cents a week or something like that for being a paratrooper. So a lot of people, people sign yeah. up for being a paratrooper. And they just do a great job at um, in Band of Brothers of going from like boot camp all the way to the end of the war. Yeah. Um, easy company e- uh, reaching the eagle's nest first. I think so, yeah. I think they were first to the yeah. eagle's nest, which is Hitler's big hideout. Yeah. Mm. Hmm. But yeah, I, it's a great miniseries, and I forgot how much of uh, the actual soldiers are. That's the saddest part. Are, yeah. Oh my god! Yeah, it's just Pretty. I. I don't know if it's in the extras that they interview some of the, or I've, or do they tie that in a little bit in the beginning of each episode? talking before to. they start each episode they have like winters will talk or yep. somebody okay. else will talk. That's what I thought. Yeah, it's uh, been a yeah. while. And then I think episode ten. They get more into okay. Like they all meet back up with each other yeah, and stuff. That's um, right. So, yeah, not to go on a tangent of Band of Brothers because <laughs> I could totally do it forever. <laughs> uh, so that Band of Brothers, highly recommend. The Pacific, if you want to see it on the Started Japanese it, side and stuff like it, that. Yeah. Didn't care for it as much as Band of Brothers, but not that it's bad or anything. Mm-hmm. Um, any World War Two and color documentary? I think they have a couple. I believe. Um, just very interesting to see. Mm-hmm. what it looks like outside of the old film in colorized and then excuse me like phoenix said anything by ken burns yeah, is just really good ken burns. <laughs> anything by ken burns ken burns vietnam civil war civil war was fantastic oh, yeah. if you want to really get into the nitty-gritty of the civil war ken burns documentary on the civil war is fantastic we actually just started um the baseball one by him. Did you? Yeah. Oh, awesome. It's really good. Yeah. For someone who doesn't know a lot about baseball, I mean, yep. Ken Burns has the ability to tell stories to keep exactly. you interested yep. and so. he just has that natural ability. He had a great anecdote about a big dumb pitcher who was so easily distracted, opponents would bring puppies into the dugout yes. and hold up puppies as he was pitching to try to distract <laughs> him. <laughs> That's great. Some of the characters from baseball back in the early days it's oh, fascinating. Yeah. yeah. That's wild. Yeah, so, so uh, yeah, um, and just movies in general. Uh, 1917 that just came out was. Yeah, I was going to ask I you. That was, I thought that was really, really well okay. done. Um, what did you think of Dunkirk? I we have strong feelings. I didn't care for it. <laughs> we didn't like it either. Nope, we thought we were the only ones. I thought they did it dirty. I didn't yeah. think they did it well at all. Uh, uh, the only thing that they did uh, right, in my opinion, was the uh the fishermen's boats coming yep. to save the soldiers I but agree, yeah. you know you have historians have talked about that and they're like there was way more soldiers on the shoreline like this is centering way too much yeah. on like just depicting like one or two characters and they they didn't you know no. and again i i don't know the dunkirk story all too well as far as from history goes well i i don't i know a little bit i can't remember a lot of it um but i know like with the pilot they were cheering him on yeah. And historically, they hated the pilots. Right. And they would just terrorize them. They'd, yep. So that whole scene was just totally fictional. Yeah. Didn't care but, for it. But 1917, thumbs okay. up. Thumbs I, up. Have you seen Midway yet? I've been wanting to see no, Midway. No, I haven't seen Midway yet. Okay. I've been kind of curious on mm-hmm. Ronald. How do you say his last name? Um, Howard? 
No, he's the one that does Independence Day and all those sort of disaster movies. He did Midway, and oh, okay. it'd be fascinating to see all right. his take on a war film. And then did you guys see? Um... Oh my god, I just I totally sorry. Uh, no, no, it's okay. Uh, the medic who refused to bring weapons into battle. Uh, it's about how he saved. Oh, Boba. is that with Andrew Garfield? Hacksaw Ridge. Yeah, Hacksaw. Is that Ridge. what it is? Is that oh. Andrew Garfield though? Yes, yeah. Andrew Garfield. Yeah, Hacksaw Ridge. Yeah. Based on a true story, actual yeah. medic who against his religion would not carry yep. a weapon into battle saved over they'd like near an entire squadron squad, yeah that sounds fascinating Got the yeah. metal and it's honor. a spider-man yep. and it's a spider-man yeah. <laughs> yeah. so lots of war movies and documentaries yes, i can recommend is. but those are the ones that i can think of off the top of my Flag head of fathers did you enjoy that one with clint Eastwood? i thought it was good it was good what about letters to iwo jima the japanese side did you? Uh, yeah, no, yeah, I, yeah, I, I would go for it. We don't get a lot of movies from the other sides' yeah. perspective. Well, the, you know, you always yeah, like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Well, the um, I know Clint Eastwood. It was a two project thing. They did the Flag of Fathers, American side, and then Letters to Iwo Jima was the yeah, Japanese, Japanese side, side yeah. and so it was done as a pair. Anyways, yeah. and very fascinating. It's just interesting to see the Japanese and their holes and stuff. Yeah. Sort of the trench. Like yeah. if you want to go more modern warfare, like Black Hawk Down, I thought was really well done. That is a well done film because they actually had the a couple of guys that were in, yeah, and you know come in and 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 help out on that movie. So that was a good one. Um, and then I thought they did the fighting scenes and how traumatic it was and how well the Vietnamese did in We Were Soldiers with I Mel Gibson. Seen that one, no. So they really. I thought to... I thought they did it well. I mean, it okay. focuses a lot on his character, obviously, because okay. it's Mel Gibson, and so they just need somebody to drive the story, which is hilarious because the war <laughs> could just do that itself, yeah. you know. But how like tactical that the Vietnamese were hiding in, okay, um, the mountains, and how terrifying it was for bet, the yeah. soldiers to come in and fight. So you can go any, you can go a lot of different wars. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of really good documentaries and movies on them, so that's why I've always just been so fascinated with them. It's, oh yeah, it's it's crazy what people go through in war, and I, when you really look at it, no one wants to be no. there. You know what I mean? Yeah, and it's just I, crazy. I agree. I, I enjoy watching war films because to just see what I guess historically what we went through and what people did, like the trenches and World War One, just their ability <laughs> to live through that is just. Yep. I could not even imagine it. And no, and like you were saying before, I'm sorry to interrupt, no. when they captured the German soldiers in yeah. the footage that we had in They Shall Not Grow Old, they're just kids like us. They're yeah. like all 16 to 18 years old. They were old. surprised. They didn't yeah. want to be there. No, yeah. they were so cordial. And yeah. so nice, you know <laughs> what I mean? No one wants to fight, you know? Yeah, and I, like with submarine movies, I enjoy watching them because I never want to set foot on a submarine. Nope. Yeah, just that would be like the most terrifying, terrifying thing on earth. <laughs> and so it's, that's what I love about movies. It's like I can sort of get experience and be terrorized by something, but you know, yep. I know I'm never gonna set foot on a submarine. Correct. <laughs> so, but I'm terrified of the things that live in the ocean. Well, they are terrifying. Yeah, you can't so. see anything. Yeah, f that noise. Yeah, <laughs> and you know, sharks. 
That is our show on Peter Jackson. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Outsiders Overrated. Next month, we will be breaking down either the Clerks franchise or video game movies from the 90s. Those are the next two shows. We're just working out a little bit of a logistical issue. I think it's going to be Clerks and then video game movies. And then we close the year with The Rings of Power. Thank you again for listening. Please review us on your favorite podcast platform and consider supporting our show on Patreon at patreon.com slash OIO. For Billy Parrot and Phoenix Sidlogic at Phoenix Sidlogic OIO on Instagram. Goodbye. I'm Tom Sidlogic at Tom Sidlogic OIO. We'll talk to you next month. Bye. Stay inside, kids. <laughs> and now we have a special guest joining us. My sister, Somerset Logic, our top background Patreon, is here to discuss Ender's Game with us. Welcome to the show, Summer. Thanks, Tom. It is great to be back. I love this book, and the movie was, you know, there too. <laughs> awesome. I can't wait to dive into it with you. We had you on last year. The reason you've been on these shows the last few years is because you are our biggest supporter on Patreon. And thank you so much for supporting the show on Patreon at patreon.com slash OIO. Thanks, Tom. It's actually fun. I love seeing the content you produce. I've started getting into podcasts since you taught me how to actually listen to them more easily. Yeah, it's very much fun. Yeah, that feels like a generational gap, huh? I mean, I'm only five <laughs> years younger than you, but... So yeah, Summer, just go on Spotify, type in my show name, and boom! Yeah, yeah, I think it was the whole hooking up the phone and actually playing it regularly, getting into it. Yeah, well, I didn't remember that you had Spotify Premium to start with, and so I tried to set you up with Stitcher, which is an app that you don't use, and... Yeah, I, you know, I mean, I love podcasts. I've been listening to podcasts for a long time. No, it's cool. And so many people were listening to podcasts for so long. I was like, I should get into it. And this actually gave me a reason to get into it. So thank yeah. you, Tom. So you've been listening to The Sherlock Show and you hate my audio production with a fiery passion. I do. In fact, I talk about it every time I can talk about OIO, your show, what things I like, what things I don't like as much. And then the audio comes up. Yeah. Whoa. Yeah. Every time. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, or was it just because I was on the show and I'm your little brother? No, no, Tom, it really is crap. It's nothing to do with you being my oh, favorite yeah, little brother. yeah, thank you, thank you. Yeah. I appreciate the honest yeah. feedback. Thank you for listening. <laughs> <laughs> Who's your favorite person on the show? Oh, Phoenix, absolutely, hands down. And I said that last year, but even the shows I listen to now, she's got great contributions. You know, she's a nice person to just have in there, kind of breaking up some of the boy talk. It's nice. Yeah, yeah, bringing up our locker room talk. Yeah. <laughs> yes, your locker room talk. Yeah. Yeah, the old nerd locker room. So last year on the show, we talked about The Gunslinger, which is one of our combined favorite books, and The Dark Tower movie, which is probably the worst movie I've ever watched. I would agree with that. Today, we are going to discuss the book Ender's Game and the movie Ender's Game, which came out about eight years ago. Now, the novel Ender's Game was released in 1985, and I wasn't aware of this. It's by Orson Scott Card, by the way, Ender's Game by Orson Scott Card. It was originally written in 1975, but it wasn't published until 77. Now, I know nothing about this history or this backstory. I think you've done a touch of research around it. If I was a good host, I would know everything. I'd be able to set this up for you. But, uh, you know, I just have a notebook in front of me, and uh, we're going to grip it and rip it. Well, it's actually pretty good, Tom. I love Orson Scott Card. He was the first true sci-fi that I read. So I, I dug into his background. There's another series he wrote just after Ender's Game, after the Ender series, that I really, really like too. So digging into his background is great. This was his first real attempt at writing a big story, and it's brilliant. I mean, we read the writing, it's super clear. It made me want to explore more of what he did. So think about 77, getting into this kind of a story. He predicts so much stuff. It's hard for me to imagine 1977 because I didn't exist yet. That is true. I mean, I was a year old, so I had way more experience than <laughs> yeah, you Yeah, definitely. You were savvy. You are a yeah, baby yeah. of the world, right? <laughs> baby of the world. 
I'm sure mom and dad got around. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, thinking about future things like um, things we couldn't even imagine at the time, like seatbelts in cars, right? <laughs> he had that down. He had that down. Yeah, awesome. Awesome. For the record, we grew up on a farm in very, very northern Minnesota. Yes. Yeah, definitely nowhere near the spaceships or the interstellar travel that we're talking about in things like this, which came out again around the time I was born. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I was, fun. I was trying to make you sound old. It's all right, Tom. I take it. My knees creaked when I sat down. In fact, I sat down and the chair went down a little lower. I was like, oh, Lordy, I'm not <laughs> going to be able to get up. It's all right. It's a boom mic. It'll go with you. Yeah. I mean, you live here now, which will be a little awkward when I go to work. But... Right, right. Yeah. In the actual office recording room. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's it's called the Nerd Den somewhere. Oh, the Nerd Den. This is the actually, Nerd Den. If if the readers or the readers, if the listeners could actually see what's going on, it's actually in the Nerd De, because the N fell off. Yeah, the uh, putty we used to hold up the letters kind of sucks. But Nerd De sounds great. Yeah, the old Nerdy. Yeah, Nerdy. Nerdy. So Ender's Game. Uh, I'm gonna give a brief synopsis of the story, then we'll talk about some of the things that stood out to us, and maybe some of the things that we didn't realize the last time we went through this book. So in Ender's Game, they start by establishing kind of the rules of the universe. Everyone's allowed to have two kids in America or the world. In the world. In the world. Earth is overpopulated. Everyone gets two kids. Ender, the main protagonist of the story, is a third kid. His parents had a lot of potential, and so they were able to apply to the government and have a third kid. Extremely rare. Also makes him singled out. He's got two siblings, Peter and Valentine. One is a monster, one is too compassionate, and that's why neither one could be uh, chosen by the military to be of great service. Can I interject and say, also, all three of these children were brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. That's one of the key factors of children in this book. Yeah, the the whole book puts smart people up on a pedestal. They, the military starts grooming people at a very young age, and they uh, test for intelligence. And you, if you show potential, you get this monitor stuck in the back of your neck, which means that the government is literally watching you and listening to everything that you say and do. Sounds awesome. Yeah, sounds like something I definitely would be afraid of. Yeah, Talk yeah, about something big brother on your back. Every kid needs. Mm. They identify Hender as having some potential, and uh, he gets recruited to go up to Battle School, which is this big, like, awesome space station up in the sky where they train young boys and girls to be military personnel. They uh, get recruited into armies, and they battle each other, and they learn tactics, and this this is where the meat of the story uh, takes place. And then eventually he goes off to command school, and there's a big war with the aliens, but most of the story happens in... Battle school. The end. Are we nice, done here? Nice, nice synopsis. Eventually it goes on and we have a huge, you know, battle with aliens. But yeah, everything works out all right. Yeah, the monitor thing is really interesting too. So Orson Scott Card, I keep saying like 77, think about the things he thought about. Think about 24-7 monitoring. We didn't even have CNN back then. So the concept of 24-7 is a little bit freaky, right? I mean, you think about the technology used. Think about going through puberty and having a monitor on the back of your neck. Like that is just, and they, they see through your eyes. They hear through your ears. It's the first line in the book. You know, I've seen through his eyes. I've heard through his ears for so many years. He's the one. Imagine hearing, Ender being there, hearing that like, oh no. <laughs> and now for my close friends that listen to the show and are a part of the OIO community. Imagine the government listening to everything that I say and do. <laughs> Imagine every volcano that like the government just rolls their eyes at uh, for some reason i don't think that i would have made it into battle school not just because i'm a compassionate soul i think uh 
I, I don't know. I just don't think I would have been up to it. The, the story sets up with a lot of background about Ender's family. There's a little bit about his parents, but it's really his sister that he loves above everyone else in the world. And when he is recruited into battle school, the only thing that potentially held him back was his sister. But he decides, you know, I'm a big boy. I'm going to go to battle school. Right. And it's funny. They actually really um, bring back that thread of Ender's relationship with his sister. One of the key themes going through this story movie or book is really ender's lack of ability of being able to make friends he's always singled out in battle school specifically he's isolated to make him a better competitor to know that he can't rely on anyone and yet they bring valentine back to help support him through when he's going through a hard time and he can't get back on he wants to quit they use that relationship that he was able to develop to bring him back they take the person that he loves most in the world and uses her to manipulate him to do what they want and they both know that that's exactly what's happening and yet it moves them forward it's really a cool head case taking a look at these kids too let's dive a bit more into battle school that's where like i said that's where the meat of the story takes place and Ender is isolated from the very first moment. He is younger than everyone else there. He is put in with people. He's singled out for being smarter than everybody, which makes everyone just hate him. So a large part of the early part of the book is how Ender starts forming alliances and starts winning people over one by one. Like he sees opportunities and he just starts building relationships. There's a kid that the local bully is picking on uh, because his butt wiggles when he walks. And so Ender hacks everyone's computer and sends a very funny message and gets this kid labeled butt watcher. It's interesting the humor that he brings in here too. It's very simple stuff that is held up from 1977 too. Uh, one of the things I love about Ender is that we get inside his head. Like we find out why he's doing that. He breaks into the computer because he's sure the adults, you know, don't give them a real security system. Oh, I was right. There's no security system. So besides beating down uh, Bernard, I think was a character in that one, helping support this other dude by, you know, watching the butt wiggler, he also sets up his own security system and establishes himself as a smart kid. Someone who actually can have the foresight to protect himself going through. And also very driven. He uh, has a pension from the very beginning of his time at battle school to piss everyone off. From <laughs> everyone on his initial launch into space to every time he's promoted, he pisses off his new commanders. Like he just, he rubs people the wrong way. And he, he does it on purpose too. And he, this is a benefit of head talk, which you don't get in the movie, but he tells his commander, eh, I don't need you. And he's telling himself, I'm going to watch how he reacts with that. So you really get in there. You're like, dude, Ender, you're a <laughs> Maybe that's why I like him so much. Sure. Yeah. I can yeah. see the connection. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, with the strategy. The strategy. Yeah. He's very clever. Uh, one of the things that Ender does throughout his time in battle school that I find fascinating, he's constantly evaluating, evaluating and shoring up his own weaknesses. Like when he first gets promoted into an army... He just gets thrown into it. He doesn't have the training that most of these older boys and girls have. He doesn't know how formations work. He doesn't know how the guns work. He doesn't know really anything. Like he knows, he knows nothing. He's like Jon Snow. And he just, <laughs> he takes stock of what he knows and what he sees. And he's like, oh, this is what I need to work on. And he, every day he starts his own training group and he spends every free moment constantly working to improve himself and just fixing those weaknesses. Now, mind you, he does have a couple of opportunities thrust at him. It's not like he's just doing this all alone. He happened to be placed in an army where they had Petra. Petra Arcanian is one of the only female characters you see in this book. And she comes right over to him and says, hey, you know, I am, I'm the best sharpshooter here. I want to teach you what you know since you're not going to be able to practice. Come meet me. We'll do this. So he took her up on that opportunity. Another opportunity he had when he was transferred was being placed next to Dink Meeker, um, who was 
going against his commander, doing his own thing, but really just used Ender, actually like took advantage of his brain and his unique capabilities, watched Ender when he was doing his own practice sessions with some younger kids <laughs> and didn't beat him down, actually said, hey, that's a great idea. Let's try it. So Ender had some opportunities thrown at him, too, and he took advantage. He was very good at seeing those opportunities and using them to their full potential. That's one of the things that I think makes Ender so interesting. Like, he's so analytical and so thoughtful, and you're right up there in his head, like, going along for the whole ride with him as he's thinking about these different ideas and how he's going to maximize these relationships and how he's going to win someone over and how he's going to outfox the next commander in the next battle. It's uh, it's really interesting for being inside an eight-year-old boy's head. You want six when he starts, right? Now, I got I to gotta say this, too. Like, one of the things that struck me about Ender is... I don't know if you've heard this, Tom, but there's there's this kind of saying where the difference between guys and girls when they fight, guys, when they fight, enjoy the fight. They want to fight. Girls, when they fight, fight to end the fight as soon as possible. And Ender seems to have some of those feminine characteristics. I don't know. He's closer to Valerie or maybe something like that. But of course, he takes it an extra step. He not only wants to end the fight as soon as possible, but he wants to use the way he ends it to end all fights from then on. He is just naturally gifted with the art of the preemptive strike mm. it you see it in the first encounter he has in the book after he gets his monitor taken out he gets encountered by a bully right away he puts that bully down and he makes sure that that bully and his friends never come after him ever again it's a common theme throughout his time at battle school too like if he he doesn't necessarily want to fight but if he has to he's gonna win and he's gonna make sure that he doesn't get beat up down the road for the rest of his life. Yeah. And can we mention the fact that he's murdered two kids before he's 10 years old? Murdered. Yeah. Straight up murdered. Didn't know, but straight up murdered them. Yeah. And he's just a scrawny little kid. It's very interesting. Yeah. No, it's definitely, there's that's force of personality that kind of drives him through. Like he, when he attacks, I, again, I keep coming back to that girl's fight to end the fight as soon as possible. He doesn't want to have to do it again because he, he figures he's the underdog, maybe. Maybe he thinks he's weaker, so he throws it all in there the first time. Which leads to going through that entire war. I don't know if there are spoilers out there from a book first written in 1985. but Yeah, it's been, uh, oh gosh, my math is failing me right now. Almost 40 years since this book came out. I think we're fine talking about what happens in Ender's Game. If you Here's your spoiler alert. We're going to spoiler the end of a 40-year-old plus novel, so... Uh, buckle up kids yeah he wins so the end everybody go <laughs> home end. yeah i thought it was interesting i don't know if we want to talk about the movie at all but i feel like we definitely will we'll go through the book first and then we'll talk about how the movie sure portrayal works one more thing that i wanted to talk about in battle school before moving on is the big the crux of battle school are these battles that the armies of kids participate in against each other it's it's everything you live with your army your status is defined by how well you do in these battles the commander of these have the most swag in the school they're usually kids that are on the verge of graduating they're trying to prove themselves so they can be promoted to command school and run their own ships fleets uh battalions i don't know anymore military terms but you know they're trying to work their way up the military ranks and the way you establish that uh background is by competing in these battles when Ender gets thrown into an army, he gets thrown in with a commander who doesn't want him. And from the very first moment, the commander says, I don't want you. I'm going to trade you. I'm going to trade you as soon as I can. Uh, maybe you'll have potential someday, but you can learn and gain experience at someone else's expense. And the commander refused to see any value in Ender, and eventually he did move Ender on. And then Ender ended up in another army that embraced him a bit more. He had a lot of success, and then he was promoted to lead his own army at a crazy young age. 
So now he's fighting against all of these older kids with his little army of misfits that he didn't get to choose, that he had no say over what personnel he had, and he's trying to bring out the best in them so that they can win these challenges. As if that wasn't difficult enough, the adults running this school start changing the way the game is played for him. They start throwing him into battles more often than anyone else has ever had them against more armies than anyone else has ever had they change the winning parameters they change everything to try to stack the deck against ender they constantly push him they they're trying to break him it seems like right. like that's the whole goal to see if he can overcome the worst challenges that they can throw at him and it's interesting being inside his head and seeing him wear down and seeing him uh try to carry that load of meeting everyone's expectations in this incredibly challenging environment so i, I see that you're at a natural pause there okay so that's good that synopsis right there really talks about the battle school and i think that that carries over to the movie really well and not that we're at the movie yet but i do want to pivot one thing that is interesting about ender specifically in that synopsis is not only is he now going to be a commander, but he approached it completely differently from anyone else. Completely different approach, right? Every other commander was talking about formations. Like, you've seen this when people go to boot camp in movies. Everyone's, ah, da, 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 burn, burn, you know, and they walk in a formation and that's what you do. Ender came in and said, no, we're just not going to do that. He started fighting guerrilla army kind of tactic right away. He actually had a small squad that was using just crazy ideas just to be able to... Um, try out anything that could work or not work. They failed most of the time, but the things they came up with were brilliant. No other commander had done that. Ender put himself in a place where he could actually react to all of those cha challenges, breaking the rules, everything the adults put up. He was already prepared, and that that was a kind of brilliance that I loved. Love that about Ender's character. And again, being inside his head for that entire ride, like it's fascinating to how Orson Scott Card laid out his thought processes mm. and how he rationalized everything and how he stayed one step ahead against, you know, adults, like people that are supposed to be formally trained in military tactics and able to adapt to anything that happened. And do you think that's interesting, too, that Orson Scott Card chose children for this? Like, we're talking about a six-year-old genius. I mean, and if we go back to his family, too, his sister, I think, was eight. His brother was ten when we first started there also genius and they go on to their own thing too with a political agenda how interesting to use children for this right their, their minds aren't even developed won't be for what 15 years i think this ties into something that i should have set up a little bit better at the beginning in the world of ender's game I can't remember what year it's set in, but Earth has been attacked by extraterrestrial life. Earth was devastated when this uh, this other race tried to colonize Earth. We managed to fight them off. There were two different wars against these people, and now the government is trying to build up the forces, find the right leader to lead a lead a third and final and decisive war against the buggers. And they're building that army on the backs of children. Right. Um, there is a theory, not a fan theory, but an actual theory in the book, right? These adults believe that children are the most malleable. They say it in, the, in the, the movie specifically that, you know, children have faster reflexes. They can learn technology better. They're able to understand the complexities of interstellar physics, blah, 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 big terms. Ooh, that sounds fancy. Um, and then in the book, too, they're, they're saying that kids adapt to games and learn and their minds are more malleable, too. So it makes sense from that point of view that you would use children. But then Orson Scott Cards brings in, he brings in these political setups for or, for Ender actually to figure out, figure out the politics of making friends by being isolated and, you know, setting out 
some um, feelers with breaking down his system and trying to get people's attention, but he's not moving too quickly. He's like, they'll come to me. I know they'll come to me. Very strategic, like socially as well. And what kid knows that? I certainly did not. Sure. Yeah. Outside yeah. is overrated, man. And that's where the sociality happens. Yeah. Sure. Outside of this room. Yeah. Yeah. Going back to the kids thing, I think the most logical explanation, and this is me just putting head logic into it, but is that so many people died in the first two invasions that they probably had population issues with not having a proper pool of candidates to draw from. So they started going younger and younger and younger. Yeah, I can totally see that. I mean, that's that's definitely something that would have happened on wars on Earth before, too. Um, but, you know, the, the guy who actually saved us all before, Mazer Rockham, he was still available. They actually sent him on a ship way out, um, about eight years and through light years, light space, whatever, so that he could come back within 50 years to train whoever it was they found as a commander because they knew they had to do this third strike. I thought that was interesting, too. Could they not have done that with some of their other commanders? Why just Mazer? That is an interesting point. I hadn't thought about that at all. I mean, if you're looking at uh, people who actually have experience with buggers, why was he the only one? And maybe that's just a plot hole, too, right? They just needed to have some hero come back to be able to train the kids. Fascinating. Yes. Thank you. Appreciate it. Hey, I wanted to talk about one other thing here, too. Um, one of the things I love is that we assume that the adults are guiding. Ender assumes the adults are guiding him, right? Um, but Ender keeps rising above them, keeps taking their ideas, going against them, too. It made me a little um, anxious for Ender that adults weren't actually guiding him, that it was just him against the world. And then it made me proud. But did you feel any anxiety from that? Like just thinking about a kid with no guidance? There's no one in charge. You were on your own. Anxiety, no. Because at the beginning of almost every chapter, there's a brief vignette of Colonel Graff, who's running the entire program and who identified Ender and who's played by Harrison Ford in the movie, and uh, Major Nelson discussing the fate of humanity and how if this doesn't work out, humanity is doomed. And they, if it doesn't work, it doesn't matter because there will be literally no life left to ponder right, whether or right. not they're right or not so no i didn't feel much anxiety but what i did think was interesting was that amongst ender and some of the other commander children was that they had they started to wonder if teachers were the enemy if the adults were actually the enemies the one that they're like fighting against and the ones that they should be pitted against instead of the this extraterrestrial race the buggers at one point, Ender just says, screw it, I'm not going to play their game anymore. And like he does, right. he winds up winning one battle by doing basically a suicide kamikaze mission. And then he graduates battle school and says, peace out, I'm I'm going back to Earth. And he goes and hangs out in the lake for right. weeks. Works with his hands. Honestly, I feel like that was something that was really true. Like I almost wonder if Orson Scott Card went through some mental trauma and had to heal because... You know, going through something that intense. And then he went to, you know, a beautiful lake and, and built a raft with his hands. He's been working with his hands instead of with his head. I feel like that's a natural healing process. Like, that seemed very real to me that that would happen. Even Valerie, his sister coming in, they both know that um, the adults are using Valerie and her sister, whom he loves. And she loves him, even after all these years of separation. It's a manipulation factor. We've talked about that. They know it, and yet they let it be. In some way, I feel like there's still kids letting the adults do this. And like, all right, let's see where this goes. Oh, we did it again. And they both leave saying, oh, yeah, we knew they were doing it and we did it. Fine. 
And then they go on, and then the third phase of the story. Yeah, they did us dirty, dog. That's did what us said, right? dirty. Yeah. Well, you know, one thing we haven't talked about, Tom, I wonder if you do want to talk about it, is what Valerie and Peter got into, too. I was just going to transition into that. Oh, While Ender's up in battle school and establishing himself as this young military prodigy, his big brother Peter decides he wants to take over the world. He wants to take over Earth, and he coerces Val to help him, and the only sane and logical way you can do it, he threatens to kill her. For like the empteenth time. Why not? Right? I mean, he's 12 years old. Why not? Take over the world. Kill your sister. You got things to do. Yeah. So they they decide to take over the world by becoming online bloggers. (laughs) That is actually true. I kept marveling. This is a small aside to lead up to it again, Tom. Orson Scott Scott Card forecasted so many things. The nets being the internet. Desktop flat iPads to see the news and to see these blogs. International debates that happen on this thing called the nets. Yeah. An international blog. I like it. Yeah, he was a, he was a visionary, clearly. Yeah. One thing he got wrong, though. So when he describes these nets, I mean, Peter and Valentine assume identities on the internet to be able to argue two different viewpoints in order to build the credibility of one against the other, right? So you've got someone who is pretty logical. He seems a little bit more open-minded, wants to include people, maybe provide more social structure. And then you have the other one arguing against, you know, setting up some things to rally the masses for more of that tribal brain, the, the I'm a little stressed about change brain. Basically, maybe a more liberal mindset and a conservative mindset and he sets it up uh, brilliantly very much like both voices draw those particular type of crowds and they argue against each other it's very similar to another political landscape that maybe happened in the past few years and he set that up so i'm going to put some words in your mouth here and uh insinuate that you're saying orson scott card could see the future (laughs) possibly except for one thing when he Put out these debates, you know, Demosthenes and Locke, the two different viewpoints. He put up the debate saying, well, everything has to be free and balanced. You can't join an international debate unless you're actually already credible and people believe you and you're you're able to talk rationally about an opinion. That he didn't foresee because that is not the case in the t- today's political landscape, right? Yeah, well, he apparently expected people to ask, act with some form of human decency. <laughs> Imagine that. Yeah, yeah. Put the kids up. Have a kid kill a whole bunch of other people before he's age 10. But no, no. For a debate, you've got to have some decency. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) So Ender moves on from battle school to command school. Like he is accepting his fate. He is moving into command school where he's going to learn to be a military leader. While he's there... He actually meets the hero of the first war, who is just a creature of legend up until this point. Like, nobody knew what had happened to him. He was recognized as a hero. Nobody ever saw him again until Ender, like, wakes up one day, and this old dude is just sitting in the floor of his room and attacks him. Yeah, yeah, sitting there, like, a kind of meditation phase, right? Like, doesn't really know what's going on. Orson's like, oh, they're throwing something else at me. Well, fine, if he's not going to talk, I'm not going to. And the guy just destroys him, picks him up, slams him on the ground. Yeah, it tells him. Yeah. Basically, you were ignoring me. Why did you do that? Why didn't you attack me? And Ender's like, in his internal dialogue, he's like, because you're an old dude. I've been beating all sorts of people up, dude. Yeah. (laughs) Ender says dude way too much. He does, right. Come on, dude. Yeah, it's interesting. They actually have a pigeon, too, when they they speak. They've got their own dialect, which I love him bringing up. But yeah, meeting Mazer changed everything, right? From that point on... Ender moves into the last stage of his training. 
Mazer is running all of these computer simulations against him. Bigger, more intense battles. And Ender is charged with uh, trying to overcome him. He has his own squad of leaders, which are his friends from battle school. Now along for the ride in command school. Uh, and they keep throwing all these challenges at him. They keep pushing him and pushing him and pushing him. And Ender starts to wear down. And his squad leaders start to wear down. Mm. Petra, who you mentioned earlier, actually breaks and like loses her will in combat and basically has to be flushed out of the system because she's no longer an asset. And so Ender now has the psychological challenge of trying to keep his squad leaders fresh and rotating everyone in. And it's just another, it's something that stood out to me both times that I've read this book now was when he realized that he couldn't rely on the same people all the time, every time. Like he had to be there. He had to be the one, but he had to consciously keep the rest of his team fresh and recharge so that they are capable in battle well and isn't that a life lesson too like you have to think about the needs of others and what their capabilities are right if you're going to drive forward your own vision you got to be cognizant of that the other thing i thought was great about them bringing that team in wasn't just that it was his friends they were his competitors as well some of the best commanders he ever fought against and they all respected him he had built that kind of a legacy at the battle school and that kind of skill set so to bring them in, they learn to trust each other better. They could respond. Like, what did they say? Like one hand off of the same body, right? Everyone moving at once. And yet there was independent action because these commanders were good, you know? And he trusted them to actually act out on that. And that trust was a big, a big theme in this book because essentially the buggers were like an insect race and they you find out that they worked with a hive mind so mm. they are all completely in sync and unpredictable in their patterns but always working together and the advantage that ender and his team had was that he trusted them to improvise and right. that if you're in this big formation where everyone's locked into doing things the right way by the book you lose a lot of your improvisation and flexibility and that was one of the way that Ender brought out the best in his team was to give them the flexibility to follow their instincts and to do what they felt was right in the moment. And that was actually what helped save them in the end too, right? Like they were able to clean up on things at one point, And I'm, maybe I'm getting the book and the movie confused here. In the book, really, Ender never really lost faith in his people. He used them too much. There's a contrast in the movie side of it too. And now, if you're interested in Ender's Game and don't want to know the big hook, the big reveal, the big secret at the end of it, now is a good time to check out. Thank you very much for listening to Outsiders Overrated. We'll catch you next month. But here is the big secret of Ender's Game. Here is the big hook, the big reveal, the curtain drawn back. These aren't computer simulations that Ender is doing. Ender is fighting the real enemy. He is commanding the actual fleet as they battle the bugger race. He doesn't he has no idea. He thinks that he's going into his final exam and he sees that he the odds are completely stacked against him again and he thinks it's again just the adults just manipulating him, messing with him, giving him a challenge that no one could possibly ever overcome. So he says, "Once again, screw it. I'm not going to play their game. I'm going to do my own thing." And he basically creates a suicide squad with this special weapon that they have he sends it into the bugger planet and he destroys the whole planet and he had had a philosophical chat with i can't remember if it was with mazer or if it was with colonel graf but whether or not he should destroy the planet if he was given it was with a mazer. chance yeah and he had to make that snap decision to destroy this planet he thinks he's playing a game. Not that big a deal, right? Like, it's an exam. Yeah, it determines his future career and maybe the future of the human race. But at his essence, he thought he was playing a game. So there was no real tangible consequence for burning down this planet. He saw it as the only possible way to win in this impossibly stacked computer game against him. So he burns the planet. Lights come up. All there, 
Like all the adults, all the higher command of the military is there. Everyone's crying, hugging, cheering, and Ender doesn't understand why it's such a big deal. And then the bombshell drops. He just literally committed genocide. It's fascinating how devastating it really is when it comes to it. And the book is a slow burn up to it. Like Ender takes some time to to get to understand it. But I got to tell you, Tom, like this draws back to Ender's personality from the very beginning. He goes for the most vicious resolve it, even when he's saying it instead of screw it. I know that'll be covered by the special little whoop. Um, yeah, I appreciate that. Thank you. Yeah, well, someone had to drop the F-bomb at some point here, right? No, but even from the very beginning, he's fighting Stilson. The day after he gets his monitor done, he's fighting Bonso in there. He gets tired at the battle school when they put two armies against him at once. It. I'm ending it. I'm ending it. It's done. I'm going to be done and out of here. Same thing happened at the very end. That's what I liked about how Orson Scott Card wrote this book. We have vignettes that tie back. It's consistent. His personality, his character is there. He grows... He adapts, other people influence him, but his core remains. I love that. Is this book a masterpiece? No, I wouldn't say it's a masterpiece, but it is one of the most clearly written and engaging books I've ever read. I think it is a phenomenally well-told story. And one of the things that really resonated with me the second time, I read it for the first time, I don't know, 15, 20 years ago. It's been, it had been quite a while, but I remembered the hook. I remembered the ending. And so... Reading through it this time, I was looking for all the little clues, everything that pointed towards it. I was looking for all the connections, all the connective tissue, because admittedly, the first time through, I didn't appreciate this book as much because I'm like, oh, he's playing a computer game, whatever, there's no stakes. And then it's like, I got the idea, it's like, oh, crap, I guess there were stakes. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> but, but knowing those stakes ahead of time, it actually enhanced the experience for me so much because you, at least I came to really appreciate Ender's thoughtfulness and the strategy that went into every single thing that he did. Like, I I knew that he was going to kill those kids. I knew that they were going to die. And so like, I was watching so closely to see if if he was truly like his brother, if he had malice, if he was a monster in his heart. A same question Ender asks himself the entire time. Absolutely. Do you know this book is actually used in some colleges, some military groups, too, to teach certain strategies? How to build, yeah, how to build leadership, how to um, establish trust among, you know, subordinates, things like that. Um, there's an advanced writing class for super intelligent kids at Purdue University who studied this book and another one, too. I don't think that intelligent people go to Purdue University. Oh, my goodness gracious. Okay. Ra Ross, got you, Ma? Yeah, I, I have no idea what you just said. I apologize. Couldn't hear. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. University of Minnesota. Oh, yeah, University yeah. of Minnesota. Yeah, neither one of us went there, but I have a tremendous affinity for I have a degree from the University of Minnesota. Thank you very yeah, much. Duluth. No, it doesn't say Duluth. That was a benefit. No, they told us that when we enrolled. They're like, and the benefit of this is it's all University of Minnesota. We don't put Duluth on the end. I wonder if people on Crookston got that too. I digress. Huh. But yeah. Yeah, I, uh, I made a poor choice going to Mankato. No, man, Cato, I'm sure it was yeah. fun. Yeah. yeah, I'm sure yeah. you had a lot of beer. Yeah, I didn't really start drinking until I was 21. Oh, me either. Yeah. Well, look at that. Yay. And these kids didn't either, I'm sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. Hey, can I talk about one more thing, too, with uh, Peter and Valerie? I just, I love the fact that they talked about brother-sister love. And you're my brother, Tom. But still, I, I love the fact that Valerie is there and her character is an important, funny character. They bring out crass humor. I love that in the book. You know, talking about like, hey, fart eater, how you doing? Yeah, thanks. You're trying to kill me again. Just this dry humor just pervades and it's intelligent and it's witty. And I really like that about their characters. You said that fart eater was witty. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry. Fart eater, probably not so witty. But, um, but it was crass. And I like that part, too.
Yeah. Anyway, I just, I just, I want to bring that back to say, because that's something you don't see in the movie. And I know we're transitioning that way in a little bit. You so badly want to get into that movie. Just a couple more things. Another thing that was super interesting about this book is after committing Xenocide, Ender doesn't really know what to do with himself. He spends some time working with his hands, and then he discovers that the bugs had been trying to speak to him, that they had been trying to relay a message to him. They had somehow hacked into a computer program at the battle school. It was a fantasy game that he played and spent countless hours of time with, and they basically laid not a trap for him, but they emulated a scene out of that that he would understand, and he saw it in real life. Can we we pause before you go fully into that? Mm -hmm. I think we might want to explain a little anatomy of the buggers, too. They couldn't speak. There was no no way they could have spoken to each other or heard each other in the same way. So they, like you said with the hive mind, they just transmit however they communicate immediately goes across. So they had a really hard time understanding, supposedly, I know it's a fiction book, but understanding humans are real? Like they think, they talk, what is this? They had no idea how to communicate. Humans were trying um, to communicate with the buggers for a very long time too. So them figuring out how to communicate with Ender is kind of brilliant in its own in its own way. Yeah, it is. That's a great point. And it was a very abstract way of contacting him, but they found a way that he would understand. They basically drew him to this point, and he discovers a little cocoon there. So he has the last hope for this race that he had eradicated from the galaxy, from the universe. And now he is carrying that with him, and he views himself as the speaker for the dead. Like, he is the speaker for this race that no longer exists because of his actions. Right. And it's a great way to end this book because I am dying to know what happens next. Like, does he find a safe place to reestablish this race that was overpopulating their planet? you gotta read the series, man. Well, let me say this, too. So, yeah, it's a great way to end it, but we gotta remember, too, when he found that cocoon, so first off, they rebuilt this entire labyrinth of the back end of a play that was a little devastating for Ender. The adults were watching him like, how did he get there? We've never seen that before, right? So it's kind of cool that they rebuilt this entire thing on a planet they used to live on. When he finds that cocoon, um, he can communicate with it. Mind images. So he goes through the most intense grief himself for having destroyed this entire this entire species, this entire population, xenocide, right? And then the bugger queen, embryo, in the sack is actually flashing her intense grief too when she finally figured out, oh, these were humans. They talk about the history of the buggers and how they actually developed... Um, one queen female decided instead of chasing off the queen, she wanted to find, have a baby that could actually be empathetic like she was and build a more advanced society. He got all of that in that conversation, which is how he actually got to be a speaker for the dead. He's the only one in the world, in the universe, who understands a species. It had to be him. That's what he was chosen for in the end. Oh, Ender's end. He was chosen. Ender's end. Yeah. It was really fascinating. There were a lot of philosophical questions in here, especially towards the end of the book that I really appreciated. I thought it would be interesting to spend a couple of minutes talking about the things that we didn't appreciate either the first time or previous times through this book. The first one that stood out to me is what a dick everyone was. Like his brother was a monster who threatened to kill him. His parents were socially ostracized because they had a third child. Bullies were everywhere. People were constantly trying to either beat him up or kill him. Like people were just cruel in earth in the future yeah absolutely i was actually i'm surprised i'm reading it a second time i forgot that his parents were not vested in him they didn't want to see him again necessarily there's a there's a line in the book that says ender comes back you know between battle school and before he goes to commander school when he quits and you know graf goes to get valerie to valentine to bring him over to see ender she's like what not my parents and graf says 
And they're smart enough to know that they closed that chapter a long time ago and they have no interest in reopening it. A chapter on their love. A chapter on their love. I was like, that sucks! Like, you understand it, but it sucks. As a it's sad. 10-year-old? As a 10-year-old. Could you imagine if dad, our dad, Tom, said, Tom, I've closed the book on you. I'm taking that boat. I don't love you anymore. Your words are hurtful, sister. I know. It's devastating, isn't it? Mm -hmm. yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. But you're not 10. You're not 10, so. I am four yeah, times 10. You are four times 10. I also thought the narrative structure of this book was really interesting. I mentioned the vignettes with Graf and Anderson at the beginning of almost every chapter. You get another, at least part of a chapter that's from another character's perspective. And it's really, I thought it wasn't necessarily a straight line from A to Z like I like, but this was a very creative way of telling the story. And I really appreciate it, especially knowing the hook at the end, I could appreciate Graf and Anderson what they were trying to do a lot more. Yeah, I agree with that too. It was interesting to even get into the minds of the adults. Like I feel like they could have been faceless very easily. Like it was nice. Um, one of the things I liked too was um, paying a little bit more attention to the slow realization of, of these, these hard things to deal with. It really does build up. Like they actually, they really get into why Ender has to make this decision and why he loves Valerie so much and why Valerie can suddenly be manipulated by Peter or form a relationship with Peter, much like she had, or maybe not the same as she had with Ender, but as strong as she had with Ender too. Seeing that buildup makes it so much more believable and fun. Yes. All right. Yeah, Very I feel fun. like that was, you're like, okay, I guess I connect with that, but you know, what else? Yeah. Well, admittedly, Peter and Val didn't hold much interest for me. It was kind of like, in Song of Ice and Fire, anything that wasn't happening in Westeros, not that interesting to me. Now, see, now I go the opposite way because I'd love to know the other stuff going on the backside because eventually that's that's going to push some things. I apologize. I've actually read more than just this book, too, so I'm well, going to stop there. It did fuel a civil war. Like, after yeah. Ender saved the day, defeated the enemy race, immediately there were international tensions that caused a civil war even on the base that Ender was on, and he had to be locked up with his squad mates protecting him 24-7 to keep him safe. Right, because everyone either wanted to have him on their side or they wanted to kill him so he wasn't impactful anymore. It was interesting. The people of Earth actually got to see all of those battles as it happened. The kids, of course, like Tom said, the big reveal, they didn't know that they were actually fighting the buggers, whereas everyone on Earth did. They saw the entire thing live. It's fascinating. I didn't, uh, yeah, I didn't put that piece together. Well, I guess I've read it a few more times. But the other thing is, too, like, you think about it, this is like watching the Twin Towers in reverse in a, in a positive way, right? Like, you're seeing actual action going on live as it happens, not even knowing what's going to happen. So when Ender turned out to be the commander they saw on every single screen, of course they're going to love him. Of course they're going to want him to be one of their citizens or coming down on their side. It's pretty passionate, pretty moving. Yeah, I believe he'd be called a unicorn. Were there any other things that you appreciated this time through the book that you maybe didn't feel previous read-throughs? No, I think that's I think that's about it. I mean, I always like going back and thinking, um, was that something I imagined or did that actually happen? So verification of my previous conceptions, right, is always a nice thing. Reading yeah, the book. verification of the headcanon. So there's a movie, too. The movie came out in 2013, and I don't think that this is putting words in your mouth to say that you hated it with a fiery passion. No, that is putting words in my mouth. I didn't hate it with a fiery passion. Like I said, this is no tower, dark what are we calling it? This is no dark tower, everyone. Um, here's here's the challenge. 
I'm going to say this. This is going to stand through in case we ever talk on this too, Tom. There's always going to be, I know in my head, probably for a lot of other people too, a book against movie thing. I have friends in Baltimore who say, oh, have you seen this movie? And I'm like, well, actually, oh, you read the book? Right. I always read the book. Always read the book. And there's always going to be some stigma between the two. I happen to be reading the book at the exact same time I watched the movie, which is never a good idea. So here's my pledge. If we do this again, I will watch the movie first and then read the book. And that'll be maybe a little different thing. Here's my take on the movie. I thought it tried to be a very faithful take. It was a very streamlined experience. This is a 300-page book condensed into a two-hour movie. I think it's uh, 300, maybe 350 pages in the book as you flip it open. I think they took a lot of the iconic moments and tried to sew them together as best as they could. And, I mean, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't, the movie didn't blow me away, but I didn't actively hate it either. How many pages? 324. 324 pages condensed into a two-hour movie. What, uh, for me, it was essential to have read the book ahead of time because I, I enjoyed the ride. Like I'm like, all right, all right, cool. Here's this thing. Here's this thing. Here's this thing. Here's this thing. Um, there was maybe one misstep with a character that I think you want to bring up. But overall, I enjoyed the experience. And talking with Phoenix afterwards, Phoenix was painting and just kind of listening to the movie and checking in from moment to moment. <laughs> this is why I love Phoenix, ladies and gentlemen. This is why I love Phoenix. <laughs> and it was interesting because she had never been inside Ender's head and she thought he was kind of a dick. Like she thought that he was completely obsessed with Prianto's strikes and that he was completely motivated by a fear of failure, which isn't necessarily the case. Like I never picked up from the book that Ender was afraid of failure. I think he was afraid of like physically getting his kicked he like he didn't want to get murdered and so that was a strong motivator for him at times but it was it was interesting hearing her take on the movie not being inside ender's head so i would strongly encourage if you're interested in the movie definitely read the book first yeah i don't know i think maybe you should watch the movie and evaluate it on its own merit because here's the thing when when phoenix said that she's not wrong they really because they weren't inside Ender's head, and you can't. That's a that's a big drawback in movies. Like, you try to narrate, it just doesn't work so well. They had to find some other way to drive the motivation forward. So Ender, not wanting to ever be defeated, bringing in Peter as just a bully, no other psycho mind games, just a bully, so Ender knows he needs to win against that. That's the motivation that drives him forward. That's the thing. That's the gap in the movie that kind of, oh, it's stressful. It wasn't the worst thing. But it was something that was out there. I get why she said that. What was the worst thing, Summer? Tom, it's hard to start with what actually was the worst thing. I've written down some notes here as far as like the fast pace was a big thing. Again, like Tom said, it was 324 pages. Two-hour movie. You got to move at a fast clip so you miss character developments. You don't get inside his head. All that I, kind of stuff. I did appreciate that it wasn't like a four-hour epic film because that would have been hard to fit in. At this point in my life, like I enjoyed having a two-hour movie that we could just sit back have a couple of drinks and go along for the ride. But Tom, why are those the only two options? We have seen so many adaptations of books, short stories, concepts on TV for like three episode series, four episode series, things like that. There are so many options for this. Maybe not in 2013. I, I do have to think about that. But Ender's Game really could have been three episodes, 45 minutes each. Build a little bit into character. That would have been two hours and 15 minutes. Okay, so maybe four or five episodes, whatever, break it out a little. Because here's the thing. Now, this part I did actually had to, had to slow down a little bit and write. So, of course, by speeding it up, we had to change the motivation because you have to believe what the characters are doing. So instead of Ender being his own person and developing 
his strategy, developing his ability to command people, developing his politics of relationships and the social structure. They just made him a genius. And of course, it was assumed he was the chosen one. There wasn't that development, which is cool. That can go for a movie, but it's a boring movie in my in my viewpoint. I thought the graphics were great, right? So that helped drive me through. But with the graphics, they also had kind of cheesy stuff. This is what I think is the worst part. They made a freaking relationship between Petra Arcanian, who is a girl who is the sharpest sharpshooter on the, the team that Ender first joined, between her and Ender. And it was awkward. I'm sitting there next to my brother going like, hum, hum, like a cat on the hairball, just trying to throw up on myself. And I'm like, not on this pretty little couch. No, I appreciate I had to choke, that. Yeah, Thank I had to choke it down. I had to choke it down. Because why can't you just have her be a soldier? Or, or a chick. One of the things, and this is a contrast with the book. One of the things I loved about the book, a cute humor thing, was that the soldiers slept in their battle uniform or their, their, their alternate battle uniform, which was naked. Which is great. These are all little boys. You're talking like six years old, seven years old. Of course they're going to sleep naked in their bunks. So Ender moves to a, to a command post where he's, the launchies are all boys. He gets on his first team. Petra's a girl. But she's walking around naked too. Someone has to warn him, yeah, don't skin by Petra. The boss, he get mad. It's like, wait, she was naked too. They look the same. It doesn't matter at that point. And that was one of the things that drove a wedge between Ender and that particular commander, Bonso, was because he realized that that was singling Petra out, that yeah. that was making her different from everyone else, and that he didn't appreciate that. Like, he hates unfair treatment of people. And why do girls not read sci-fi right away when they get in? Maybe there aren't a lot of female characters. Or there weren't back when I was growing up. You know, in 1976 and 77. 77 comes. Here comes Petra. I'm like, yeah, strong woman. That's great. 2013 comes. Ah, oh, she gets thrown in the trash. Because you know why? She fell in love with Ender. Oh. Yeah, so I didn't appreciate that. Romance for romance's sake. Hey, you're talking to the guy who just did a show about Sherlock Holmes and Irene Adler. Yes, absolutely. And actually, I was thinking about that, too. You know, Irene Adler doesn't have to be the romantic be-all and end-all. It's just people wanted romance, so they take it and use it. You're right. Actually, I agree with you. Ooh. Yeah. Uh, no, I'm very smart. Very yes, smart. Yes, yeah, yeah, sometimes. Sometimes. Yeah. Yeah, I um, I had a hard time believing the motivation for the characters. But again, I read the book, so I, I sucked it up and I went on. The movie, I think, is probably decent for people who haven't read the book. Maybe a little slow. Funny. Fast-paced, but maybe a little slow. One of the things that I think was probably a challenge for the movie was so much of the book takes place in battle school and so much of battle school is these battles that are taking place in zero gravity mm. and they had some cool zero gravity scenes they had some really good effects for that and it showed one of the highlight moments between like ender and his best friend Eli. but it just felt like a lot of that was missing probably because it's hard to pull off those zero g special effects well, and you also move so much slower like i expected zero g they're talking um you know, the expectation of the book is that they're flying around and had to rebound off of walls. I just thought they were moving faster. But in the movie, it's like, yeah, you go out there. I'm going to go. Boom, bada boom, bada boom. And he jumps and he's not moving very fast. And that's those are the battle scenes, the most exciting parts. Really slowly. Yeah. Yeah. Not a lot of battle scenes in this war movie. Yeah. Well, I mean, toward the end, there were. I thought that the graphics on that were good, too. I got to say, like, I kept thinking about the book so much. I had to finally tell myself in my head, just shut up. Just look for look for the movie moments. So that's what I started doing. And we found some where you really, like, felt the characters. You felt the motivation, right? And Ender, the character who played, uh, the person who played him, Asa, I forget the last name. I have no idea. 
Yeah, well, apparently... I did no research for this show. Oh, okay. I wrote down one sheet of notebook paper. Okay, well, you know what? And it looks like a fully written on sheet of notebook paper on the wide, wide world yeah. with a magic marker that's large print. It's Daisy good. bought me this notebook. You shut up. <laughs> I do stickers. No, no, it's a real notebook. Um, yeah, so movie movie moments in there really made it happen for me. And then toward the end of the movie, too, I got more sucked in. Um, probably because I hadn't just read that part in the book. I hadn't quite finished that part, so I was able to be sucked in. I feel like I'm failing people. Well, we probably didn't do ourselves much of a service reading the book and then watching the movie so close together. Because I read this book over the last two weeks. You were on even a more abbreviated time frame than I was. Yeah. And, you know, I've read it before. I'm a fast reader. Yeah. It just, it was too much. I got to, I got to separate them. That's what will happen in the future. We've talked on Outside is Overrated before about the difficulties any property has with an adaptation because you're never going to be able to make everyone happy. If you do right. a true beat-for-beat beat adaptation, someone's going to say, there's no new ground broken here. Why would I watch this? Like, it's the exact same. But if you dare to change the canon in any way, shape, or form, sure, they're going to have a legion of nerd rage pointed at you on the old Twitter machine, and nobody wants that. So, I don't know. I... I went into this just trying to enjoy the ride. I appreciate that you were very analytical with it. But I just, you know, I just read Ender's story and I just loved it. I'm like, oh, cool. Now I get to see Ender. Awesome. Yeah, I was excited to see the movie too. Well, here's the thing too. Like, I make a list in my head of what are good film adaptations. Actually, I think I had a class in college for that, which started it. You know, there's there's only a few that I think are really good adaptations that even if they veer from the original canon, they do a good job of it. They keep the motivations or the character or something. Something true stays. The one challenge I found here with the movie is they kept going back to using quotes from the book, but the motivation wasn't the same. So it felt it felt wrong to me. Like, I know he was trying his best, the screenwriter Gavin DeGraw or some sort of, it wasn't Gavin DeGraw, but someone with a name like that. And Orson Scott Card was a producer on this. You know, he informed it too. I feel like they tried really hard, but they just didn't get there. Not for me. Yeah, I thought it was a pretty good adaptation. What I want to close on here is why do we love Ender's Game? For I think for both of us, this is going to be completely about the book and why we love this character. The first thing that comes to mind for me is how Ender overcomes everything. The deck is constantly stacked against him. Like he's not the biggest, strongest kid. Maybe he's the smartest. Maybe, but there's other kids on like the same level of genius with him. He doesn't like completely blow everyone out of the water with his brains. It just, he, somehow he always finds a way to overcome every challenge. And they tried so hard in the different battles to stack the deck against him in different and creative ways. And he always found a way around it. I loved how Ender overcame adversity. Yeah, I love that part too. And you're right. There probably is a couple of characters, probably are a couple of characters in there that are smarter than him. You know what I like the best? I liked understanding his logic for how he went through the progression of his thoughts, right? And I'll use this example example too. Ender is um, showering alone in the shower, and he knows it's a little bit late, and he's all alone. He's got the water running. He hears some footsteps, and at this point, he also knows that there is a an active conspiracy amongst older boys to kill him. That to is a crucial part kill of this. Him. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So he's he's standing there showering. He hears the footsteps. He knows that there are people out there. He's been warned not to be alone, and so his first thought goes to. Oh, I wonder if people finished lunch early. I might have missed lunch. And then he keeps hearing it and he's like, oh, I wonder if maybe someone just got out of a battle and is showering now. And then the next thought is, or maybe not. Boom, turn around. There are the people. Action starts. That was brilliant to me. Every time Ender goes through a set of 
changes, challenges, a growth opportunity. He has these thoughts and we get to see them and they build upon each other. And you can actually see how his, how his mind is turning in that. Love that part of the book. And he keeps doing it. Plus, he's a good kid. He's just a good kid. Yeah, a good kid who happens to murder other kids. Yeah, but for the right reasons. And that's the whole thing. I mean, Colonel Graf makes that exact point. Another thing that I loved about Ender in this book is how he builds bridges. We talked about it, but... Every relationship that he strategically formed, there was something that he got out of it, but he tried to bring value to it as well. And he was very strategic in the people that he brought into his circle and how he approached them and kind of won them over. That actually seems like something that would resonate with you too, because you're very strategic too with your friends. You have long friendships, good friendships, even if it's not many. I tell you the hey, most- I have plenty, plenty of friends. Hey, let's, have- let's not throw shade here. I have a- <laughs> I have no, a vast and fulfilling social I network. I meant that in a positive way. It's not, you don't have to be friends with everyone. You're friends with the people that you want to be friends with, that you need to be friends with. And who yeah. pay money for the podcast. And Well, there's that too. Yeah. Right. That's I feel honored to actually be allowed in the house to see my nieces. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> thank you for letting me donate. No, here's my thing. The thing that strikes me about Ender's Game and pretty much all of Orson Scott Card's writing is the hope. They're facing awful circumstances. These are kids who've never faced this. There's a whole lot of growth that has to happen. You don't know if it's going to go... But you have hope. And that's that's what draws me back to Orson Scott Card. It would have been interesting if this book ended in the complete opposite way and like Ender fails and humanity gets wiped out because of it. I think that would have been... <laughs> I would love that. I, would, I want that in my dark little soul so badly. And maybe we can write something like that. Like, woo! Boom. Yeah, fan fiction. Ender loses. It brings up... Another interesting point about this book is the ethics of colonization because the bugs were, they had they had overpopulated their planet and so they were looking to expand and they came to Earth and they didn't think that humans were sentient beings. Turns out they discovered that they, that we were and so they didn't come back and that ended up destroying their race because they didn't come back and finish the job that they started. We got pissed off and we built up our army. We found this special little kid and we destroyed them. It's just funny because in the book, like there's this one point where the queen's like, oh, we going to die. Like <laughs> that's pretty much how the, how the translation goes. There are a lot of political thoughts on this time. Um, but I would say they said that they had used up their planet. They compared themselves to humans or the author, whatever compared humans and buggers the same where humans were overpopulated or using too much of many of the resources. I think they were trying to try that, tie that forward, tie that together for humans needing to colonize. And that was how you did it. And it was, it was a bad business and it sucked and maybe leads to genocide, but it almost kind of validated human behavior. I think the way they did it like an ego trip. That's what I kind of took out of that. It makes me a little nervous. I don't like that stuff. Yeah, it's a terrifying thought. Yes. Yeah, it's yes. like, oh, yeah, all well, you can be as awful and horrible to each other as we want because, you know, we need to be. It's fine. Right, because we need to be. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, it's interesting, too. And uh, not to get into anything um, huge and, you know, open up a new bucket of worms, but actually they're talking about human population rates in certain countries are going down a lot or have been huge. It's actually pretty good. Cool. Saving on our resources. Cool. Yeah. 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 Did you hear about the raid on Mar-a-Lago? <laughs> Woo! Oh wait, that's uh, that's where Tom and Joy unfiltered. Different show, different show. <laughs> that's pretty much going to wrap up our discussion on Ender's Game. Is there anything else that you want to say about this novel, this movie, where the series goes? Like, I highly recommend this book for anyone with like an interest in sci-fi or military tactics. I Phoenix had talked about reading this with us and being a part of the show, and just logistically it didn't work. We didn't get another copy of the book. We were on a very tight timeline to get this done. And as I was reading, I'm like, oh, this is a lot of like military boy stuff. I don't know if she'd be into it. And then it got into a lot more of the philosophical stuff. I'm like, oh, well, I think that would have been really interesting for her. So 
this is a military book mostly with also some political intrigue and some philosophical interesting philosophical questions thrown Tom it's also about relationships it's hugely about relationships and personal development I think this is a book anyone can read this was my very first sci-fi book I, I was introduced to this the same time as Harry Potter I had read Margaret Mitchell Gone with the Wind right before it this book everyone can read it's written simply you get into it and it's about humans it's really about humans yes read it read it read it and what about the movie? Oh, f*** it. Sorry. <laughs> Should I take that out? I didn't mean to. Sorry. The movie sucks. I, it, it's okay. You can read the movie. Or watch the movie. <laughs> oh my gosh. I'm not a fan. I was, I was really liking the book. Yeah. Book's awesome. I enjoyed the movie more than my sister, but uh, it is, you know, there's always going to be a problem with adaptations. Yeah. I think if you watch the movie, watch it before you read the book. Yeah. Well, you know, don't tell me what to do. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Outside is Overrated. We're going to be back next month to talk about video game movies with Joey and Casey. Thank you so much for listening to Outside is Overrated. Please support our show on Patreon at patreon.com slash OIO. For Phoenix at Phoenix Sidlachik OIO on Instagram and at and for Billy at not on the internet anywhere. I'm Tom Sidlachik at Tom Sidlachik OIO on Twitter and Instagram. Thanks for listening. Stay inside, kids. Oh wait, we're supposed to sing as cats. Meow meow meow. Yeah, I was always like doing a cat voice.